Calgary guys staying at home. Ryan Pinder and Pat Steinberg talking sports, pop culture, life, and anything else. Your afternoon diversion is right here. Stream online at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Download the Sportsnet or Radio Player Canada apps. Pinder and Steinberg are on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Happy Tuesday and welcome to the show. We are underway from our three different locations as per usual. Pinder is at Shea Pinder. We got Logan Gordon at the Sportsnet 960 Basement Systems downtown studio and I'm sitting here in the Beltline at Shea Steinberg and I've been uh, I've been thinking about this, right? You know, there's been a lot of buzz over the last 24 hours, 48 hours, pretty much since the weekend that, you know, what what is it going to look like if when the NHL returns, and is there actually a possibility that the NHL could be back? Could we see the league play games in the summer? And I know that there are a lot of pitfalls. I know that there are a lot of uh, different hurdles that the league is going to have to clear to do this. But I, I thought, well, let's let's have that conversation. We didn't have a lot of time to talk about it yesterday. Emilio Peterson joined us almost right off the hop as he signed his entry-level deal with the Calgary Flames. But let's let's get into it. What are the realistic ways and the realistic pitfalls, the actual things the NHL is going to have to clear from a hurdle perspective if they're going to want to make this happen? There's, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of them. Yeah, so the first one that has to happen is you have to collect players. So, well, and then even before that, you have to be granted the ability to do this from, you know, regional governments, medical professionals to say, we're allowing this to happen. Then you got to collect the players. Then you've got to quarantine them, I imagine, coming from all over the world, countries with very, very different policies and situations with COVID-19. Uh, probably two weeks, then run training camp. And, uh, you know, there's a lot there. Are borders open? How are you collecting players? You know, before anything is going to happen, you have to have an agreement in place with the PA about how this is going to work. There's been concerns illustrated in the last uh, 24, 48 hours from, uh, I think, Jonathan Taves speaking about other PA members and players that, if we have to be away from our families three to four months, that's not really ideal. And that's kind of what going into a bubble is asking players to do, at least in the way that we've understand some of the proposals uh, of late. So there's a lot of hurdles uh, and it doesn't mean any of them are, are not going to be able to be overcome, but there's just a lot of little things that can go wrong. And that's even before we talk about an outbreak or a city that they're in running into issues, whatever, even minor stuff like, Hey, we picked rally and it's, 38 degrees in Carolina in North Carolina today. The ice is crap, and we got three games on the te- on yeah. the deck. I mean, there's there 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 are more pitfalls than there are potential pitfalls than there are anything else in there. There's so much unknown and so many things that could go sideways because you're trying to operate with some sense of normalcy in a time that isn't normal at all. Few things. First of all, welcome to Pinder and Steinberg, and I want to kind of go through all those different pitfalls and go through all those different things that the NHL is going to have to figure out. Uh, we're live on the radio, Sportsnet 960, the fan. We're live online uh, at sportsnet.ca/slash 960, and we are live on Instagram Live uh, for this first segment. However, uh, Pinder's having microphone issues, so uh, Ryan's got to figure out his uh, microphone. We'll uh, let him do that. We're going to play a clip in just a second, but uh, if you want to come through on ig live and see these two idiots for this first segment uh feel free to do so uh steinberg 1984 is the uh ig 
handle come follow come watch live or doing the first segment live as pinder tries to figure out his uh his microphone here is elliot friedman who joined us yesterday uh and talked about kind of similar to you the keys to resuming the season what would have to happen if they were able to get hockey back underway you need to have medical professionals say you can do it you need to have uh, local governments willing to say that, you know, we'll let you do it. Those are probably one and one A. Uh, and then one B is probably, you know, you have to be able to be able to test people. You know, as we know, one of the big issues has been testing. And I know that, you know, a lot of people in Alberta are think that you guys have done a really good job of testing compared to other people. But, you know, one I've had a couple of players say to me, they're not convinced it's a good idea for them to be getting a whole bunch of tests when, you know, other people can't get them. So I, mm-hmm. I think that is a big issue too. So I would say those are the three things right at the top of the list. Will the medical professionals let you do it? Will the governments let you do it? Is there enough testing going around that you can test everybody every day? Because you're going to have to do that. That is Elliot Friedman from yesterday, basically outlining the same things you just talked about, Rye, about testing, about uh, needing to quarantine the players, about having to get the government signed off on all that type of stuff. Uh, so, by the way, Pinder has got his uh, his Instagram live working, so you can come uh, watch the show, first segment. Uh, you can come watch on Instagram live, Steinberg1984 or Pinder You Suck are the uh, two Instagram handles. So come on, watch live if that's you're interested in doing that. Uh, you do suck. There's no doubt about it. So here are here are some of the uh, here are some of the hurdles, and, and I think that number one, you got to find a location that works. You got to find a spot that um, you can. You got to find four spots at least that you can feasibly be able to quarantine players close to the arena and find a way to make it so that there's almost no risk of them coming in contact with everybody else. That includes the media, that includes arena workers, that includes hotel staff, all that type of stuff. So you have to find a spot where you can quarantine these guys, isolate these guys as best as humanly possible. And and that's why I think the idea of Edmonton makes so much sense. And yes, you'd have to get exemptions from the Alberta government, the Canadian government, all that type of stuff. But I do think that Edmonton makes sense, that J.W. Marriott has a ton of floors, a ton of capacity, and you don't have to leave the hotel to go to the rink or the practice rink. You can have one team per floor, and you can keep these guys as controlled as you're going to be able to get anywhere. And there are other setups like that, similar to that, in the league right now. Los Angeles has got a similar setup. Minnesota's got a similar setup. You could find spots like that. So that you got to find four cities where you've got the ability to truly quarantine and keep these guys controlled. And and so I think that is number one. I don't think that part is really unrealistic. I do think you can find spots where you can institute these controls and keep them somewhat or, or as close to totally isolated as you could possibly get. That would be step one for me is finding at least four spots to be able to do it. Don't think it's a problem at all. I think we've seen what, like the 12 to 16 number been floated around by the league in terms of markets they're exploring. That's not really much of an issue. And the other thing is, is I mean, you're still guessing at this point. Edmonton's in great shape now. Where's it going to be in July? We don't have a clue. And because some place is good now doesn't mean it's going to be good later. 
And you could make the case, I don't know if it's scientifically 100% accurate or not, but if a certain area hasn't had the virus, is it not more susceptible to infection three months from now than places that have already theoretically hit a peak and come back down? I don't know. And uh, so Edmonton looks great today. Uh, Vegas, for a lot of logistical reasons, would make a ton of sense. You could literally give a hotel to a team in its entirety. You're talking about a place built on hotel capacity that's got to be close to like 1% at this point or something like that. Yeah. But there's no shortage of markets that would be okay at this point. I don't think the that's the biggest challenge for this group, uh, for, the, for the whole proposal. I mean, even the players, like just, let's say you're an LA King, like you're Anze Kopitar. Are you going to leave your family for two months to finish up a meaningless season? Well, and I that like I think the- is, is one of the next steps is... I, I know that the NHL keeps talking. Well, the NHL has said very little, but I know that the NHL has talked about and insiders specifically continue talking about how they want to they wanna finish the regular season. And I, I just don't see how that, A, makes any sense, and B, is realistic. Because the, the, the idea of taking teams like, as you mentioned, Anze Kopitar and the LA Kings, uh, Philippe Deneau, we'll, we'll play a clip from him a little bit later on here in this segment. Philippe Deneau talked about it today. Uh, the Anaheim Ducks, the, all these teams that are not in the playoffs and, and have no shot at being in. It's different if you're Minnesota. It's different if you're even Chicago and you still had somewhat sure. of light there that maybe the playoffs could be a possibility down the stretch. But if you're the Ottawa Senators or the L.A. Kings or, or the Detroit Red Wings, what motivation do you have to go play out a bunch of meaningless games where, in Detroit's case, they're already mathematically eliminated? I think the, the regular season is unrealistic from that standpoint, and I also think resuming the, uh, the regular season is unrealistic from a standpoint of you're, you're going to want to play all these games in this one hub and, for instance, the Calgary Flames still had games against the, the New York Islanders, New York Rangers, New Jersey Devils. Those games aren't going to happen. So what, no. why, why mess with a regular season schedule midway through when you can just start the playoffs? I, I feel well, like starting the playoffs is, is the only way they can do this, whether it's 16 teams, 20 teams, 24 teams, and they, they figure it out that way. That seems like the only realistic way to do this thing. The regular season seems bizarre to me. The regular season is about chasing revenue. Because the LA Kings will have a deal with, let's say, Fox Sports LA or Southern California, whatever, the, you know, for an example. And Chris Johnson talked about this, I think, last week, that are the Kings now going to cut a check for the 20% of the season that's missing or whatever the case may be? Or can they fulfill that obligation keep the money that's been paid or continue to collect the money that was going to be paid over the course of a regular season. It's about money because there's no good reason to bring these bad teams that are way out of it back. There really isn't a good one from a competitive balance. It doesn't help to give away the Stanley Cup. It doesn't really do anything except allow you to collect more money. Rink boards, whatever. It's true. I I don't... It's, that's probably the main reason why they want to do the regular season. And I just think from a logistical standpoint... They'll probably realize at some point that that's that's not going to be something they can actually feasibly do. So okay, let's let's say that you know just for the sake of this conversation, they decide to not do the regular season and they just start the playoffs. Okay, well the next thing is they have to figure out four locations where they have access to tests, yep. and they also have access to tests that aren't going to take away 
from the people that need them the most. And that's not a yeah. – we're not being callous when we say that a bunch of NHLers and, and NHL team personnel are not the people that need the test the most, the people that are on the front lines, the people that are in high-risk areas, the people that might actually have this thing, those are the people – that are going to need to have uh, the most access to test. So here's, like, for instance, why I think it would work in Alberta, and this is one spot, is because in, in the next little while, we're only a weeks away from the Alberta government believing they're going to have the capacity for 20,000 tests a day. And right now, we're testing, what, 3,000, 4,000 people a day. So I don't think it's crazy to suggest that come July or, or come June, when they want to start this thing, that there will be plenty of options for NHLers to get tested in Alberta. And if it's 500 tests a day that they need to get these guys tested and to rapidly see whether or not they have it or not to be able to go forward to the game, okay, if they if the NHL is, is cool for paying for these tests and Alberta has got more than enough ca- capacity to do it, then I think that that is something feasible. And if you can get three other spots where there's capacity to be able to get 500 tests a day, I'm just ballparking a number of what, like, five to six to eight NHL teams in one spot would be for personnel. Okay, well, there's another hurdle that you've cleared. But, again, you got to find four spots that are able to do it. Yeah, I think Alberta is going to have capacity to do it, and maybe Ontario or maybe some of these other places. But you have to make sure, and the only way a government is going to sign off on this, you have to make Make sure that you're not going to be taking tests away from people who need it a whole lot more, right? Yeah, well, it's just political nightmare. Imagine being a leader of a state or a province and saying, sorry, we don't have a test for your sick parent who's, you know, the demographic we have to worry about the most because we are giving 500 a day to professional athletes that are making millions of dollars. It's, I mean, you could do it. You know, the state of Florida has deemed wrestlers, you know, essential employee or uh, workers like crazy things happen but i just see that as i I, you can't do it and expect not to be crushed in most places on earth um and as you said like i I just looked at it the last 10 days this province has averaged around four thousand tests a day they have talked about ramping up capacity that's great The, the the struggle would be for alberta when are they going to allow gatherings of X number of people and how many people do you need to gather to get not only a hockey game done with the 23 hockey players, the coaching staff, the trainers, the equipment guys, but also a television crew. Uh, You've got a TV truck, right? Can you do that separately remotely? I don't know. What about camera people? What about, you know, the officials for off ice stuff? If you're going to be collecting stats, what about the referees? I mean, all of a sudden, we're nowhere near the 10 to 15 to 20 number. You know, you're talking about you're probably closer probably to 100, right? Over 100, probably to to run a game as we, you know, as bare bones as you can go in an NHL game as we know it. That's uh, so. Is your government ready to do that? And I guess we have to view, you know, if you are a business owner and your practices are deemed to be a lot safer than gathering 100 people in a rink. Can politically you say sports are okay to come back, but your business, your livelihood, you who pay taxes here, you can't open? That's a bit of the delicate dance as well. And and that's more art than science in terms of how that's presented and how people feel about it. Because some of us would say, I'm fine with it. I just need to be entertained. I want normal. And others would say, this is BS. Why are billionaires from elsewhere being favored over local people that really need the focus to be on us getting our economy back, not, you know making the NHL league headquarters happy. 
there like and and that's another one of the hurdles is that there are probably going to be even in Alberta again we're talking about it because Edmonton's been one of the places that has been rumored to to be able to host these things well if that's the case then they're going to need an exemption. They're going to need an exemption to hold a gathering of more than 15 people, which isn't allowed in Calgary, for instance, until the end of August, and we don't know what that's going to look like in Edmonton. They're going to need an exemption. They're going to need the government to say, okay, because you are are showing us that you can control this thing and there is very little risk of an outbreak and very little risk of it impacting the general public of our city and of our province, will allow you to do this. They're going to need that type of exemption. And teams are also going to need an exemption to have players cross borders. Like, they're going to need the federal government of Canada at this point to say that, yes, players who are in, like, for instance, just I, I believe Derek Ryan is going to join us on this program on Thursday. I believe Derek Ryan is currently self-isolating and quarantining, uh, quarantining in his hometown of Spokane, Washington. So he would need exemption from the Canadian government to cross the border, to return to wherever the Flames would be congregating to resume the season. And a player who is congregating in Canada or quarantining in Canada would have to have the same type of exemption to cross the board like there's a lot of things that the nhl is going to need to clear from a logistical standpoint and that's just yeah. another one uh and on, on top of the fact that yeah i mean most places are are capping gatherings at a certain number and that number is usually less than what it would be to run an nhl hockey game so there's going to yeah. be a, a lot of they're, they're going to need a lot of government clearance to be able to make this work as well well, and, and just to get back to the point I'd made, but to maybe portray it a little more closer to home, let's say you've got Steinberg Industries and you make knickknacks uh, in a factory. You can distance people, mask them up, and show that you can be safe. Why would the regional government allow sports to come back in much denser, riskier workplaces than what you can do? How would you feel about it? I know mm-hmm. as sports broadcasters, we feel great about having content. I know for people that are missing watching sports on their couch at home, you can justify that. But it's not necessarily just as simple as that because if the league can say, here are all the things we're doing, look, we're good, approve us, does that open the door for every other business in the province to say, look, here's what we're doing to protect ourselves, let us rock? It's not really fair if they only do it for one thing and not the other, right? And the final, and and I just wanted to, like, I I believe like I, I I was talking to a colleague of ours, uh, Kristen Anderson of uh, Post Media. I was texting with her yesterday. Uh, I've talked about this with a couple of other people. I believe this is doable. I believe the NHL can make this work. I have quite the I I'm I'm fairly optimistic about this. I understand there are hurdles, but my my personal belief is yes. I think the NHL can return and i think there's a better chance than not that we do see games starting in late june or july i do believe they can do this and and because of that i'm i'm wanting to underline what is going to need to happen for i i don't think it's a guarantee and i don't think it's set in stone but i i believe that there is a decent chance this can happen and i'm optimistic about it happening but there are certainly pitfalls and reasons why this is going to be difficult. The final one is, here's a, here's a clip from uh, Philippe Deneau of the Montreal Canadiens on a conference call today, uh, and, and he talked about some of the different issues from a player's standpoint. 
it's hard to say because you know all those teams that were in playoff, they they would all probably say that they want to finish the season and uh, uh, in some somehow some ways I don't know. But um, for us right now, I think for the the health and for everyone, I think um, the the not the best scenario, but um, the best way to finish this would be to concentrate on next year and because we keep pushing everything and I think it would uh, deflect too much on the next year as well if we would start it say in uh, November or anything like that so uh, it's gonna, it's a difficult uh, decision for the league and uh, and the players you know some some players could be away from their family three to four months which I think it's way too much and uh, I'm not the only one thinking like that I'm sure so it's going to be a big decision for the, the rest of the season Final, the final thing that he brought up there is the one, the last issue that we haven't talked about, and that is taking team personnel, players, coaches, PR guys, trainers, uh, equipment guys, all of the, all of the people um, that are involved with the team that would have to be in this city and in this quarantine to make it happen yeah you're probably talking about with a training camp at least a month away from families and for a team that goes deep and all the way you're probably talking about two months or so if not a little bit longer of being away from your family and and i i don't like i think that is a valid concern i think that is a a fair thing to bring up but i also would say and this is not to be callous and of the two of us who's got a who's got a family who's got kids not me that's you so you'd have a a, a different perspective on this but my kind of cut and dried response to that would be that's right, and I, I, I don't think it would be easy for the families to lose uh, a member of their family for that long, and I don't think it would be easy for the player to be away from their family for that long. But if they want the NHL to return, if these players want to recoup millions upon millions of dollars on their piece of the pie or their, their slice of the pie, and if they want to resume the season and fight for a Stanley Cup, I don't see another way that's going to happen. So there's no gray area here. I, I really believe it's either leave your family for a number of weeks months and resume the season or don't resume the season and i'm not trying to be callous and saying suck it up that's not what i'm saying at all all i'm saying is that i think that's what players are going to have to debate is what's worth it at, at what cost are they willing to resume the season and my guess would be most guys are going to say well we don't like this it's definitely not ideal we're going to do it, and and we'll we'll go about some of the the hardships and difficulties uh, that that would take part place in the personal life to resume a season. I, th- I think it's a fair comment, but I also think it's the only way that hockey's going to return this season. Well, and I think you nailed it on the head. If you're a family man, this is a much more difficult decision than if you're a 22 year old whose entire you know life has been focused about becoming a pro hockey player. Those are very different phases of your life. And I think as much as this is an issue in hockey, it's an even bigger one in baseball where league minimums like a half million American. And it takes a long time before you can get into the system of getting paid in terms of arbitration, first time, second time, third time, then free agency. And on the flip side, so if let's say you're three years into your major league career, you could be an all-star and not make much money. Like that's very normal. Yeah. Whereas if you're Justin Verlander and you're dating – Kate Upton and you've made two hundred million dollars. Like that disparity is greater than yeah, the, the, Ver, the Verlander is Upton the Verlander like, Upton that connection. The There's a lot yeah. of money there, hey. No, but and it's not even like her I'm just saying it's very, very easy for someone that is trying to get 
their career earnings to a spot where they're comfortable to say, yes, I'm in. It's a lot harder for someone who has made millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to say, yeah, I'm cool, uh, because their priorities are so different. And so yeah. if you think that's a tough one for hockey players, go look at the disparity between uh, haves and haves nots in some other sports. And baseball is the biggest one where you could, you know, Vlad Guerrero Jr. will make a half million dollars this year and other guys will make 30 plus. Like that, that's a huge disparity. Yeah. Um, and it's one that we brought up when the, the Phoenix bubble was proposed because that's exactly the conversation we're having now about hockey was happening almost a month ago now where it was like, why would the vets want this at all? Why? They don't have to worry about earnings as much as the younger guys, but you're right. When you, when you listen to Dan O, it's like, okay, you don't want to do this? Well, if you're not comfy with it, you better be comfy with escrow of 30 to 50%. Yeah, and I think that's really And they've hated escrow like at 10, 12%, 14 this year. Oh my goodness. Well, what happens when it's almost half your paycheck going right back to the owners? That's what you're trading up right there. Quickly before we hit the break, uh, we got Rowdy Tellez of the Blue Jays coming up in just a second, but a, a few of the texts, 960960, blue-collar workers who just want to get back to work don't sympathize with millionaires that don't feel like going back to work because it'll interfere with their off-season. Uh, this reads, Pinder's comment about preference to billionaires actually made sense. Am I actually agreeing with them? Holy crap, there's a first time for everything. Hey, congrats. That's what a pandemic does. Um, this reads, do you really want players to come back and just start playing the playoffs without warming up? I don't know if there's going to be another way to do it. I mean, I think there might have to be exhibition well, games and a training camp, but I just think the regular season's unrealistic here. Um, one thing that we, we could do, Pat, maybe you cut the number of games remaining for each team in half. You dump the teams that are way out of it, and in each quadrant or each one of those four hosts, you, play a few like you that. allow the playoff contenders to play six, and then you're into playoffs. And I know and it's maybe not you perfect. can do something like that, yeah. But but then you get rid of the bad teams that are just going to be going through the motions that have nothing to play for. Um, you also don't spend three weeks wrapping up a regular season when we've already sort of drawn a conclusion about, you know, 90% of the teams that are in the tournament. Maybe that's the way to do it, but maybe they are really keen to have the Detroit Red Wings play 82 this year. I don't know. I All I know is that there are going to be some logistical hurdles to getting this done and and resuming it. There's no doubt about it. It's going to be unlike anything that the NHL or any other sports league, for the most part, has has had to deal with. But from an NHL standpoint, yeah, I I think that it's going to be unlike anything they've ever had to deal with. But A, I don't think it's impossible. And B, I do think that there's a decent chance this can happen. I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it. I do think, if you're going to ask me right now, I do think that they're going to be able to get things back underway. Next up, Rowdy Tellez. He's calling right now. Quick break. And back with the Blue Jays' first baseman and designated hitter on Pinder and Steinberg. Next, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg continues on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. All right, it's uh, 2.31 on, I believe, Tuesday? Yes, it is Tuesday. Uh, we're just having a little bit of issues with Pinder's mic on the other side, so we'll get him fixed up. Uh, welcome back to the program. It's uh, Pinder and Steinberg on a Tuesday afternoon, as you can understand, doing uh, shows remotely. Uh, sometimes you have a couple of technical difficulties. Pinder, Pinder will get that figured out very quickly. My name is Pat Steinberg. His name is Ryan Pinder, and very happy to welcome in a very special guest as we say hello to Rowdy Tellez of the Toronto Blue Jays, who joins us on the line this afternoon. Lots to talk about with Rowdy, including a really uh, cool initiative the Blue Jays are doing right now. But, uh, Rowdy, thanks for doing this today. How you doing? 
I'm doing good, guys. How you guys doing? We're doing all right. How uh, how you hanging in? How are things uh, How are things going for you with with all the uncertainty in the world? Yeah, I mean the same as everybody else. Just you know, maintaining social distancing, um, hanging out at home with my dad and sister in California. Um, you know, working out as much as I can, hitting as much as I can with what I have at my house. But I mean, I'm just ready to get back out there. I want to get out and play. You know. You're uh, you're in Sacramento. Is that where that's you're, you're from? Sacramento. Is that where you're? Uh, is that where you're self isolating right now? Yeah, I'm. I mean, outside of Sacramento, I live in a town called El Grove, or I'm from a town called El Grove. So okay. So um, what? Uh, tell us about yeah. what that's like. But it's weird being home this time of year, and uh, you know, in El Grove, because I haven't seen you know green green trees and hot weather you know it's right now i think it's like 91 degrees so uh i haven't been here in in quite some time so it's kind of different but you know it's it's good I, it's good to see my sister good to see my dad um hang out with them you know we got a lot of projects going on around the house that apparently uh i'm now a part of so uh it's been good but as much as it's nice to be around my family you know i'd much rather be playing baseball so you're, you're, you're not going to change careers to handyman. You're going to stick with the baseball thing at this point. Yeah, I'm not – I don't I don't have that in me. Um, <laughs> I'm more of a, a bat hit a ball type of guy, you know. <laughs> but um, it's, a, it's all good. It's a, it's a little bonding. So we've been doing some stuff, you know, around the backyard, planting new trees, laying gravel, uh, new sod, you know, a lot of things like that that we've been, we've been doing, building dog crates to keep puppies away from – you know sprinkler heads but just a little here and there having some fun crazy uh i was actually in Dunedin uh, on march 13th and ripped out of there right the day after uh things sort of fell apart in the sports world the nba canceled its season the nhl did the next day and it felt like uh you know it was only a matter of time for major league baseball to cancel spring training activities which i believe happened the next day uh, crazy. Walk us through your recollection of the days leading up to it and how abruptly things ended. Uh, so we played, I was, I think it was like the 12th or 13th was our last day we played. And then they kind of, they told us, Hey, we had our meeting, you know, we're going to have to, you know, shut down kind of the, the facility and, you know, we're going to shut down spring training to, you know, kind of get ahead of this and make sure nothing else got out of hand in the sports world for the baseball side. And um, so the 15th, I just hung out. Um, the March 16th was my birthday, and I flew out. I flew back to uh, California um, because I live in Florida full time. But I knew that with the shutting down of our facilities and spring training being put on a hold, I didn't have anywhere to train or to hit as much as I wanted to where out here in California I have access to both those at my house and uh, quite big, you know, areas. We live in um, we live in a house that has a little bit of property to it. So, you know, I have, I have the ability to, to have my space and do what I need to do. So that was my decision to come home. But it was definitely a very odd feeling to hear, hey, we're going to put the season on hold. We're looking at May and then now it's getting pushed back further and further and you know, just everything that's going on in, in society with the virus. It's it's just a very odd time to be in sports and just in, in the world in general. I mean, yeah, 
you're, we're basically confined to our houses and and going to the grocery store when need be. And other than that, it's that's it. Well, speaking of groceries, uh, you've been getting involved with the Blue Jays. They've got it from home plate to your plate food drive going on. What can you tell us about the food drive and uh, how you're getting involved? Oh, sorry about that. Um, it's it's good. It's very helpful. Um, we've been big with it because uh, it's just a, it's a whole country that we're we're trying to help. You know, these are our people. These are people that um, support us in everything that we do. All of our endeavors. They're always very supportive. Like when we came to Calgary for winter tour, you know. So it's we're in a situation that it's it's time to give back, and we are helping out every family we can. Um, you know, because it's a tough time. You know, with the jobs. Uh, the economy, everything that's going on, and we're very fortunate enough to be in a blessed situation that we can help, um, you know, a whole country and a whole, in all communities, you know, keep essentially keep food on the plates and make sure that, you know, nobody goes hungry and, and in this tough time. Uh, we'll recommend everyone goes to bluejays.com slash from home plate to your plate. There's more information there. We'll tweet out some links as well at the end of the interview. So what, uh, what's what been the schedule? You mentioned a bunch of yard work, hanging out with family. Have you gotten into uh, the last dance, the Michael Jordan doc? Have you found a series that you didn't have time for before? What's uh, what's the latest and greatest in pandemic time killing? Um, I've been watching some Netflix. Uh, I haven't got to that yet. To the to the documentary um but really it's just been a lot of you know working out in the morning hitting in the afternoon and in between just doing yard work building stuff um uh i've been fishing a couple times down on on the river i just want to get out i've been taking some river drives so just taking my car and driving down the river roads um back roads just anything to get out of the house really, but, uh, you know, <laughs> staying in my own car to just see what, just see, you know, it, it gets kind of hectic inside the house when you're just inside a house all day or in your own yard. I just like a little change of scenery and be able to, to drive around, but there's no cars on the road. There's no, there's nothing. I mean, it's like a, it's like a bear city. It's like the wild West where the two Cowboys are coming through. <laughs> yeah. The tumbleweeds and all. Um, it has yeah. to be a, a weird start of a year to, to pause. I mean, obviously the pause itself is weird, but just felt like there was a lot of optimism and excitement around this roster. And certainly one that would be really difficult not to suggest is in a much better starting point than the roster the last couple of years. Uh, I would hundred percent agree. We have an extremely good, uh, core of young players, um, you know, we had some great additions, Chase Anderson, uh, Anthony Bass, Travis Shaw, Joe Panic, Hunjin Ryu, Shun Yamaguchi. I mean, we just we made some great moves this offseason to put us in uh, a situation to win day in and day out. And, you know, going into spring and seeing how spring was unfolding for us as players, um, you know, we were really excited to get going. Uh, I know a lot of us were excited to see Matt Shoemaker get back and come back healthy. Uh, he was having a great spring training. You know, it's it was just a, a really optimistic time that we were going through and it kind of just put a, a halt, you know, threw a wrench right in the, the system. And, uh, but, you know, every, I know that we talk as groups um, and everybody's kind of on the same page of staying in shape and staying ready to go and, and being the best team when we can get back on the field. 
want to ask you about Bo Bichette. It really seems like for, for a player with less than a year experience in the league, he's really carved out, I guess, a, an identity in that uh, on that roster. What's he like in the locker room a year later at spring training? Uh, he's the same guy. Nothing's changed for him. Um, he's been kind of that that young leader, a guy that a lot of people turn to. He's a comfort zone for a lot of guys. Um, I think the way he handles himself, his maturity is extremely advanced for his age. Um, but that's somebody that we as a group don't ever have to worry about. He he just is so confident in understanding of who he is and what he means to this team that it, he never wavers, whether it's good or bad. He's the same guy day in and day out, and that's all you can ask for. Yeah, fair enough. I remember when he was drafted by the Jays, it was a, a curious pick in some ways because there was a thought that some teams wanted him to change his approach uh, and others said, you know, we'll, we'll want to leave you as you are. What was uh, your experience like on draft day? Because you were a very unique guy. You came in way over slot value. You were picked much later than you probably should have, but uh, you and the Blue Jays found a way to make that work. Uh, yeah, I was a very rare kind of situation our first round pick didn't sign we actually showed up to our physicals together before we signed just because we were the last two picks and uh he came in with a broken hand so that kind of helped me out a little bit in a way but um yeah I, I think my situation was different um but all in all I mean I'm here where I am now and I wouldn't trade it for anything and it's been a, a great feeling to be where where I'm at but draft is the draft and you know it's a, everybody says there is a a time to be you know un you know grateful for what happens but yeah that that was a special day for me too rowdy Telez joining us of the blue jays first base dh on uh, pinder and steinberg sportsnet 960 the fan rowdy i'm, I'm curious as to kind of your approach to a season where you know you don't necessarily know when it starts and baseball being such a regimented sport and we, we talked to mike soroka of the atlanta braves a couple of weeks ago and and you know as a pitcher you've got your regiment in terms of when you're throwing and when you're ramping up throwing and all that type of stuff what about for you how have you dealt with your workouts and your training and all that type of stuff not knowing exactly what date you're aiming towards it doesn't change it hasn't changed then my spring training routine hasn't changed my off season it's all the same uh you know i'm i'm getting ready and staying ready um every day like tomorrow we're gonna start and we're gonna be back so i you know maintaining everything i can with what i have available to me to be at the best possible shape and conditioning that i can be in and when you know when the season resumes just your your confidence level whenever this season resumes you you got into 111 major league games last year it's your you know by far the the longest you've played most you've played in the majors just from a confidence standpoint where are you entering this season yeah i'm I'm extremely confident i've always been confident no matter what i do how bad it gets how good it gets um i've always been a confident player in my ability i understand my ability i know who i am so I think um, with the surrounding players that we brought in and the, the core nucleus that we have has only brought my confidence higher, being, seeing that what everybody's done and the work they put in to come back and be championship team ready uh, has only made it, made it better, and that's all I could ask for. 
last year when you get, I mean, you, you essentially were solidified as an everyday major leaguer last year. Uh, you talk about always being confident, but you know, you, you talk about your journey and, and you've had to just like anybody else come up through different levels of the minors. But was, was last year kind of that affirmation for you that said, okay, I was confident. I knew I was a major leaguer, but here I am. And now there, there's no doubt about it. I'm, I'm an everyday major leaguer. I think from day one I started playing professional baseball, I knew I was a major leaguer. I knew I was going to be able to get there. I would say that it has solidified me as an everyday major league player. That won't be my mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I work for and strive for, and that's what I will be. But that's not the mindset I have. The mindset I have is it's nothing's guaranteed, and you can't take anything for granted because at any given moment it could all be taken away from you. So I like to try my best to, to keep that style of mindset of I'm just going to go take it day by day and I'm going to win the day with my team every day you uh finished last year 21 home runs that's the highest total you've had going back to when you were playing double a and any specific reason for that like did you feel like there was anything that you put in work wise that that led to a little more power or led to you seeing things a little bit differently at the plate I think there is some things um you know, I am, I'm a strong person. I got stronger that off se- last offseason. Uh, I put in a lot of work to better my swing uh, and understand it more. And and um, I think that over time, it's only going to get better. I put in even more work this offseason to be ready. That's with all the confidence I was coming through. Um, going into the season, I worked with Bo Bichette and Dante this offseason with, with my approach and we're changing a few things with my swing just on the mental side. But, um, yeah, I'm extremely confident going into the season and with my swing. Tell us about working with, with Dante. That's uh, That guy had a pretty sweet swing, and uh, that guy hit for some power in his career. You know, Bo's your teammate, but tell us about working and, and going through some things with Dante Bichette. Uh, well, it's like working with Bo, but he's just a little bit older and played 15 years longer. But <laughs> it, they're the same. They're the same guy, same mentality. The way they speak is is very mature, easy to understand, and they preach very simple things to to you know make your swing what it is. And it's all just on the mental side. Rowdy Tellis is with us of the Toronto Blue Jays, joining us here this afternoon on Pinder and Steinberg. Roddy, you've obviously been in the organization for a while, but Charlie Montoyo has been your big league skipper last season and. Uh, his first, a second one uh, was scheduled to happen this year. Tell us about uh, what he's like and maybe compare, contrast him to, to what you know of John Gibbons, the, the man prior. Um, I think they have very different styles of man- managing. I don't know Gibby as, as well as I know Charlie. Like I said, my first full season in the big leagues was with Charlie. So I think it was a learning environment for me to understand my manager, which it is everywhere I go when I have a new manager. In the minor leagues, I had Bobby Meacham for five years. So I didn't, I, you know, that kind of relationship was different. But uh, you just have to learn and understand what your manager expects of you and how he holds you accountable and the things that he desires for you to do day in and day out. And I didn't get to really get that with, with Gibby. But um, these two managers are – both destined to win. They want to win. They they love to win. They're very very driven and uh, very respectful managers. 
to play for, and I was a very grateful to have both of them, you know, kind of going through my first seasons, quote-unquote. Yeah, fair enough. It seems like Montoya is a real upbeat guy, and uh, I, I know that couldn't have been easy losing as many games as you did last year, but uh, someone that can lighten the mood has to be helpful, right? Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, it was, like I said, a tough stretch for us last year but we definitely learned a lot we grew a lot as a whole entire team um charlie got to understand us we got to understand charlie you know we were in a lot of first time situations at that level for a lot of coaches and a lot of players so um we learned a lot and i think with that being said we are ready to go and we're ready to compete with with everybody in the big leagues i want to ask you one sort of bigger picture one we've seen a lot of uh I guess, emphasis placed on positional versatility in, in the majors the last few years. You know, the Dodgers have been famous for it. There's a lot of other teams that have that ability to move their lineup around, whether it's injuries or getting guys days off of rest or cycling guys through DH. What have you seen uh, from the group uh, in, in the last couple of years that uh, would you say you're, you're, that the Blue Jays could be one of the more flexible teams on that front? Uh, I think so. I think we can be. But that's not something that's in my control. I think we do have a lot of players that are very, very good at, um, you know, positions that are very high-quality positions. We have Bo, gold club caliber defender at short, along with Cavan, Vlad uh, over at third. And our outfield, I think, is one of the better outfields, and I think a lot of people don't respect that enough. You know, we have Guriel that made a transition out there that, pretty much flawless and you know Gritchick very solid outfielder Teo um, I just think a lot of people write us off because we don't I, I view like people don't think that we have that one star-studded veteran player but you know, like I always say we're always out to prove people wrong yeah fair enough um Wanted to ask you about Hyunjin Ryu and what uh, the circus that followed him to spring training. Did you get a sense or have any clue about uh, his superstardom in his native uh, South Korea before he arrived in Dunedin? I didn't. I had no idea um, until he got here, and then we were seeing like his following and just the media and overseas, and we saw some of the funny commercials he did, and he's just a great guy. Um, Loves to be around people, always smiling. Uh, he was actually pretty close to my locker. We were about two lockers apart. Um, and he's just always smiling, happy, loves to work. Um, just a great guy all around. And when you talk to people from the Dodgers organization, they have nothing but good things to say about him. You mentioned uh, passing through Calgary in the winter on uh, winter tour. Uh, what did you know about the, the sort of coast-to-coast -coast brand the Blue Jays were prior to your first winter tour? And, and, and what about the new stops that you – maybe places you hadn't been before or hadn't heard about? I, I had the idea of how much support we had from coast-to-coast. From -coast. Like, I understood that we are the only team in Canada. I didn't realize or comprehend that it was truly, like – coast to coast whenever like I landed in Vancouver um and when I was in the airport I mean there was just Blue Jays fans everywhere I never played in Vancouver I was there for two days 
played one game. Um, I, I so I didn't get to experience it. I didn't play at home either. I played on the road, so I didn't get to experience being in Canada. The first time I ever played in Canada was in Toronto, and uh, to to go all the way to the West Coast and see the support, and then go into Calgary and the fans were lined up through the out the doors everywhere mm-hmm. we were, and that was a very humbling you know, sight to see, seeing that we are just baseball players. We are just normal people like everybody else. We're just guys that get to have fun on a baseball field. And people really, really appreciate us for that. And I can't be more grateful to be in an organization that represents an entire country, not just a city. Okay. So saying that, where's the best road crowd? If you're looking for cheers when the Blue Jays get hits and Make plays, Seattle. Yeah, you love it here. That's the right yeah. answer, Rowdy. That That's was, the right answer. I wouldn't even. I wasn't even going to let you finish. That was the coolest experience <laughs> to be a part of. To was to go to a, a a different team's stadium, and I had a tough time picking out Seattle fans. I like had a tough time. I couldn't find them. It was hard to find them. I mean, that was one of the most special moments of my pre- professional career. Was playing in front of the people on the west coast of Canada. That was really, really cool. I know it's uh, it's an annual pilgrimage for a lot of people in BC, Alberta, the prairies as well. And uh, it's cool to hear you say that. When, when did you hear the hype? Did you Was that a thing that you'd heard about coming up through the system? Or was it only when, hey, we're three weeks out, by the way, Seattle's crazy? I had seen it on TV... And I had saw it um, kind of on social media when I had social media. And I was like, man, that's something I, I want to I be a part of. And I had been sent down this year or last year, and I got called up a week before that trip. And when I got called back up, I was like, okay, I'm making the Seattle trip. And I was floored by the amount of support. We took BP, and, I mean, there was more people at batting practice at that game, at those three games than I'd ever seen at batting practice in my professional and major league career. It was so cool. I mean, and just the screams, the screaming, the signs, the, it was just, it was a special, special time to be a part of. I mean, standing in the outfield and just messing around out there and interacting with the fans. It was, it was cool. Rowdy, thanks so much uh, for joining us today, for getting involved with this food drive for the Food Banks of Canada. we got a, a link we're going to send out. We'll have some more information for our listeners. Thanks for being involved, and uh, thanks for appreciating uh, the, the Canadian fans. Oh, no problem. I mean, that's, that's something I'll never forget. As long as I play baseball, as long as I live, to be a part of this organization and be you know, playing for all the fans across the country, it was it, All right, I think we lost Rowdy there. Big thank you to Rowdy Telez of the Toronto Blue Jays. A reminder, they've got their food drive for the food banks of Canada. Very simple. You can head to their website for the Blue Jays and check things out. Bluejays.com slash from home plate to your plate. The Blue Jays uh, matching donations and raising significant funds for food banks coast to coast. Uh, Jays Care and the Sprott Foundation will match the first $300,000 donated by fans Dollar for dollar. Certainly, we understand, uh, you know, how uh, serious the COVID-19 virus has been 
for most people, never mind those in the greatest need and uh, with people trying to keep food on their plates. It's been an incredibly challenging time for food banks coast to coast as they see demand jumping. Uh, and every little bit goes a long way, yep. uh, especially with the help of uh, from the home plate to your plate uh, that uh, the Blue Jays are getting involved with. $600,000 match just like that with the, the potential for more. For more. That's, uh, that's really awesome stuff and uh, really cool to chat with Rowdy Tellez. Uh, we, di- we did not get a chance to ask him about his dad, Boomer, uh, but we can do that another <laughs> time. I feel like we're all familiar with that, but Rowdy might <laughs> no, not. He be would that. not. I He'd mean, be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> now, that said, I believe he was in studio uh, for the winner uh, for the for the Blue Jays. Well, that's right. Tour. The, the, the tour. That's right. Now, I wasn't here, but I and I can't recall if, if Boom was was there or not that day because it was kind of eh, I think it was close to Christmas time. I think he would have been. So maybe they broke him the news that Boomer was his father uh, or at least, you know, the a doppelganger of his father or his doppelganger. Uh, maybe not. But uh, that that's a that, that's a good I, that's neat to hear the appreciation no doubt. Um, That's and cool. I, you know, a lot of guys will say, yeah, you know, you're a pro athlete. There's lots of fans, but to, to hear him speak uh, in awe of, of the, the Canadian fans traveling and, you know, going coast to coast, it's neat that they understand how huge this brand is. This is a national team. It's really unlike any other in pro sports, except maybe the Raptors last season kind of got to that level. Yep. Uh, once again, bluejays.com slash from home plate to your plate. If you'd like to get involved with this national food bank drive, uh, donation of just $20 will provide 80 meals for those in need. Bluejays.com slash from home plate to your plate as the Blue Jays are chipping in coast to coast, uh, trying to help our food banks in all of our uh, Canadian cities in need. All right, we're coming back. NHL insider Chris Johnson around the corner. Sports at 960 The Fan. Back to Pinder and Steinberg. Calgary Sports Talk in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. 303 in Calgary. Gorgeous day. Uh, not quite 20 degrees, which is an important number to me, Pat. But uh, a lovely one out there. Let's really welcome in our NHL insider. Chris Johnson. Chris, we have to explain this to you. It is uh, the 218th consecutive day of not hitting 20 degrees in Calgary. 219 is a record set in 1933. Uh, we're this close, so we may as well get there and set a new one. Well, you don't need to explain because I've been seeing that on social media a bit. So I've been I've been charting your your weather records. Mostly from I've Peter, never been probably. into weather. It's just me. It's I'm the only one that cares. <laughs> uh, Interesting news out of Chicago in the last 24 hours. John McDonough and the organization parting ways. Uh, what does this mean and what uh, will he be remembered for? Because, uh, my goodness, that organization looks a whole lot different with him leaving than when he arrived. Yeah, he'll be remembered for 22,000 butts in the seats every night and three Stanley Cup banners uh, hanging from the roof of the United Center. And, and you know, that's far more success off the ice or, or on the ice than the Blackhawks had had in decades and really in their entire history, actually, if you look at it since before he arrived. So, you know, I think it was a monumental piece of news. You know, obviously, John McDonough, if you're not living in Chicago, maybe isn't too much of a front-facing character, not someone that, that fans or the media would focus too much on. But internally, he was a big part of a culture shift in the way the Blackhawks do business. I think he was fortunate uh, to arrive at a time uh, when they, they acquired some of the young players that uh, helped uh, deliver those three Stanley Cups. Obviously, uh, his, his impact on the hockey side is, is only to a certain degree. But 
um, you know, for that organization, he's been a commanding figure, and I don't think anyone really saw this coming. He was on the, the team president's call the league had last Wednesday, and, you know, he received a public vote of confidence from the owner as recently as a couple of weeks ago in an interview at The Athletic. So, you know, this was a bit of a surprise and probably signals a shift in the direction of the organization that's going to play out now over the next uh, few months and, and maybe a year. It was uh, interesting to note uh, Kurt Overhart, the uh, NHL player agent's thoughts on an exceptional player status. Um, I immediately shrugged it off uh, just saying, look, Gary Bettman locked out this league over for a full season to get a hard cap and not a soft cap or a luxury tax. Uh, Any reason that would be any different now that this would get traction when uh, it was essentially grounds the league was willing to die on? Not long ago? No, I, I don't, you know, I, personally, I have no issues with the idea. I like the idea of, you know, allowing maybe a little bit more flexibility in the system, but I view it as you do in that I, I don't see any world where the teams are, are going to line up to sign this. I mean, I suppose, as in any type of negotiation, there, there could be things the players uh, give back in terms of concessions that maybe compel the league to do this, but, you know, I think it's a long shot. Uh, just because the, the, the benefit if you own a team in the league or if you're in the front office is that there really aren't that many exceptions to, to the NHL's cap. It, it's truly a hard cap system. It guarantees that only 50% of the league revenue is spent out to players, no matter what the circumstances are. And so because it's such a favorable deal for the owners, I don't see them making this, this type of concession at this point in time. But, you know, I do applaud Kurt for, for putting that out there um, because I, I think that this can be a time, especially – uh, it just this goes on and on without games and, and much to talk about other than when and if they're getting back on the ice that, that we should explore some new ideas. You know, over in Sweden, they're debating right now about going to a smaller ice surface, something closer to what we have here in the NHL. I think that this is a good time to 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 use this, you know, with, with different stakeholders in the games to throw ideas out there. But I just don't see this particular one uh, catching hold uh, in time for the next CBA negotiation. Well, that's fascinating in Sweden. Why is that the case and what sort of is seen as the benefit of, of going to closer to NHL ice? I, I think they feel that the game uh, maybe is, is just played too much on the, the outside of the rink. I mean, we see that sometimes in international events. I know it was a concern for Team Canada at the Olympics in Sochi with, with all the NHL stars going to the wider surface. And, and what they propose there is bringing the, the boards in two meters, which, which is basically halfway between olympic size ice and NHL ice. And they, they're actually hopeful that by making this move now, and, and they haven't fully agreed to do it, although some pretty powerful figures in, in the, the hockey league over there are behind this and are supporting it. So I think there's a good chance we'll see it start to be rolled out. But they feel that it might compel teams to leave prospects over in Europe a little longer too, that, that you know one of the reasons you see a lot of NHL teams want to bring their Swedish prospects in the AHL is, is because they're worried about that adjustment from the larger ice to the smaller ice. And that, you know, if, if that consideration is removed from the equation, it might be a way to keep young players, uh, you know, in, in the domestic league a little longer. Chris Johnson with us Tuesdays and Thursdays here on Pinder and Steinberg. CJ, what, uh, what are you hearing? What's the latest when it comes to the NHL's plans or hopes to restart this season? Well, really, we're we're getting closer now to, I think, a little bit of movement, um, you know, for the league. There, there's some talk that, that maybe as soon as May 15th, some teams might be able to open their facilities for small group skates, which is essentially the, the phase two of 
the plan the NHL has come up with to get back to, to playing. Uh, you know, it's still probably a little bit premature to say for sure whether it'll be that soon, but the fact that these conversations are happening, I think, is a reflection of the fact there's a focus internally on, on the transition from where we've been since the season was paused in phase one, which is, you know, players being recommended to isolate themselves and report symptoms and all those things to, you know, getting them back on the ice with an eye on, on opening training camps in June. And so, you know, with the, the calendar about the flip uh, and I think, you know, a fair bit of discussion behind the scenes turning so optimistic, you know, the, the NHL and, and I believe the players right now are on board with, with doing what they can to, to really try to see this out and, and, um, you know, execute on some of the plans we've talked about with the centralized uh, way of getting the regular season games uh, started up in the summer and eventually hand out a Stanley Cup. So how, cl- how close are they to, for instance, finalizing what the four hubs would be? Do you think they've got front runners? Do you think they've got the four they want? Or is that still very much up in the air? I, I'd say the, the best way to put it is it's up in the air. You know, I still think that there's as many as 12 cities that are being considered and, and vetted uh, for the possibility. And, you know, the, the truth is, is the league still can't be 100% sure what the governments uh, are going to allow. You know, I, I do think that Edmonton is, is considered as a very, very strong option, but obviously there were some comments since that first emerged, you know, from the health authority there that, that maybe cast a little bit of doubt on whether the league would, would be allowed to go ahead and do that. Um, you know, Toronto is, is considered a front runner and they've been vocal uh, about wanting to, to host. I think Columbus is viewed as a strong possibility. I know Dallas is seen as a potential spot, you know, that, that could be a little bit more for the teams in the South. Um, you know, those are the, the kind of teams we're hearing. But, you know, I, I think that you would see the league wait at least maybe another few weeks to a month before committing uh, because they have to be sure, you know, how the, the situation develops in those cities. And ultimately, they might have to gain some exemptions from the local governments in order to have gatherings of what you know is probably somewhere in the range of 200 people i've told is, is sort of what you're looking at to, to have nhl games put on uh with a tv broadcast in a building that doesn't have any fans allowed in it um so you know th- there's still a, a fair bit of even even without the concrete cities i guess being nailed down i, I still think there is a high degree of optimism that this is going to be a functional plan that it's one that withstands the rigors of, of, you know, health authorities. And, and ultimately it's going to come down to, you know, being allowed by the local government authorities to, to be able to do it. But, you know, they're, they're looking at cities that have lots of available ice because you're going to have to have areas for teams to practice. Uh, the, the best bubble is a bubble uh, that has an arena basically with, or sorry, a hotel right within the, the vicinity of the arena, like they have there with that JW Marriott in Edmonton, mm-hmm. uh, because it just, it just eliminates one less, Thing you have to control that being a bus ride uh, in, in which obviously the bus has to be cleaned the, the the bus driver would have to be someone who's living kind of in that that same isolated bubble you can remove that it's it's considered a safer scenario and so i think i think cities where um you, you do have lots of practice ice available and, and where there's quality hotel accommodations very close to the arena and where obviously ultimately the, the government authorities are open to it are the ones being most closely looked at and just for the record, I, I, I'm I'm fairly optimistic that whatever the plan ends up being finalized as, I'm fairly optimistic they can put this thing into into practice. And, and I believe that this is something doable. But in saying so, what are the, the big pitfalls for you? What are the, the, 
largest and most significant hurdles that the NHL is going to need to clear to ensure, A, they can start doing this, and B, they can finish this? Well, I think in some ways the, the biggest first hurdle is going to be getting everyone back to North America and, and you know, having them sit out periods of, you know, 14 day, observe periods of 14-day isolation if they're traveling back. Uh, you know, from Europe, say, to, to Canada or if they're playing in the U.S. I think I think kind of just getting the wheels in motion on this is going to be a challenge because the league would like to, in a perfect world, you know, get training camps going somewhere around June 1st, uh, potentially play some exhibition games, you know, towards the end of June and then get the season going or restart it, have, the, have you, you know, report to your, your, your four centralized cities and, and, you know, get the thing started on the regular season by July. And, and I just think that that, some of the, the hurdles between then and now are, are pretty big to scale uh, because I do know of two players at least that flew back just last week to Sweden, uh, and I don't blame them for doing so. They're now looking at this like we're not going to have a summer, so this is an opportunity to get home and visit with people and do things that you would normally do in the off season because obviously what we know of an NHL calendar is currently being rewritten by the day. Um, but it, it's only to say that there are hundreds of players that need to somehow find a way to uh, get back to their cities and how you go about doing that, how you make sure they're, they're, they're healthy and safe. I mean, in the bigger scale, I think, you know, a, a more wider access to testing is going to be, uh, you know, essential to this. And it's something that we don't have now in most places in North America. There's still a lack of testing. Obviously, is what they do if somebody, you know, turns up a positive reaction to the, the novel coronavirus. I mean, the, the league's already said if it's one player or a small handful of players, it doesn't call the whole thing off. But how they control that, how they isolate that, mm-hmm. what the acceptable level of risk is or, or what have you, I think will be an important question to, to get to. But there's so many small details that, that have to happen long before that's, I guess, a pressing issue for the league. That Those are the, the things I'm most focused on right now. What um, Philippe Deneau on a conference call with reporters today said that, you know, a lot of players won't like having to be away from their families for however long this would go on for. I think for some teams it would be a number of weeks. For some teams it would be a number of months, depending on how far you end up going. From who you've talked to, how, how significant is player pushback on this potential idea? Well, it's look, it's out there, and, and I do think it's something the union deals with on a lot of issues that maybe don't have one clear answer, that, that they, they do represent a lot of people, and, and obviously there's, there's different priorities within that group. I, I don't see it, though, being an issue that's going to squash the plan. You know, I, I do believe if the, the government authorities and health authorities allow the NHL to go ahead and, and make this happen, if it's deemed safe by them, then, then ultimately the, the Players Association will comply. Now, you know, within that, there might be some individual exceptions made, you know, perhaps some guys ask out and are given permission to, you know, maybe this plan ultimately includes some way, especially for the teams that play deep into the playoffs and will be, you know, sequestered away from the families the longest. I mean, maybe there's a way to have the families join them within that bubble at some point, you know, maybe as teams start getting eliminated, there's, there's room in those hotel spaces and there's right. a way to, to make that sort of thing happen. I mean, I think all those are possible ways to address this concern. And, and look, it's not as though it's one player out of the whole league that has the concern. I just don't see it being a deal breaker. I mean, ultimately, this comes back to the same thing we've been, been hitting on a lot, is that there, there's a lot of money at stake for, for both sides in this. I think the overwhelming amount of players are willing to put up with uh, the nuisance of it, I guess, or some of the, the downsides of it to try to have a chance to play for the Stanley Cup. 
for no other reason than to preserve their ability to earn as much of the contracts they've agreed to as possible. And, you know, at, at the end, you know, some of these guys are going to have just spent three months at home at a time when they normally wouldn't be at home. And so I, I think that if you balance it out on whole, obviously part of their job is, is to be away. And so, you know, I, I do think you'll hear other dissenting voices, but to me it's not going to be a deal breaker based on the, the conversations I've had. And and just a, a final thought on, on that specifically, whenever I've had conversations with people, the, the main thing that I keep saying is to, hey, look, I mean, yeah, there might be pushback from players, but there is a significant amount to gain from their standpoint too, and not just the fact they could play for a Stanley Cup and be playing again, but can you break down the financial impact from a player's standpoint of, of what getting this going again would mean? Because there's, there's certainly a, a financial benefit from the Players Association side too. Well, for sure. And, and the numbers that I've heard quoted are between four and 500 million. It's believed could be recouped, you know, as a whole, um, you know, by, by being able to resume and finish the regular season and holding a playoffs, even, even in a scenario without fans. And a simple way to look at that is the money split both ways. So that's 200 to 250 million uh, that will be, you know, allocated into players' pockets. So, and if that doesn't happen, that's money that will be, have to be made up in escrow or paid in some other way. And, and, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of how this all shakes out will probably be subject to some of the transition agreements that are made. But in simple terms, you know, it, it, this, this is it's, it's a lot of money for, for players. And I think that there's a symbolic value as well in, in getting the league up and running and, and getting some momentum into the next season when, you know, we're, we're probably now looking at, uh, you know, based on what I'm hearing from teams, the start of next season not happening anywhere before December. Uh, and the, the hope that, you know, at that time, maybe you're having some fans in the building and, and certainly as, this, as the next season goes along, uh, you know, we can get to a point hopefully where there's a vaccine and, and you can get closer to full arenas and, and, you know, have next season be as good as possible. I mean, that's part of what goes on here, too, because at a point when there's no revenue for the league, there's no revenue for the players. And these guys already have short enough uh, earning windows as it is. I think that there's mm-hmm. I think that there's there's a probably a pretty deep understanding within the union about the importance again not everyone will be on side with it some people won't like it i think philip Deneau's issue probably is that the, he doesn't feel the canadians are even going to be in a position to to be in the playoffs because if they do get the regular season in it's going to be the top 16 um you know the way we've been in the past it won't be an expanded playoff format and so I, I get that it will be tougher for teams that are kind of out of it but you know it's also it's also his job and uh you know it's, it's going to be decided by the union as a whole, not just uh, you know a small handful of members. He's Chris Johnston, our NHL insider, joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on Pinder and Steinberg. CJ, just a thought on the these uh, neutral sites, or I shouldn't say neutral sites, the host cities. Are are we guaranteed that it's going to be divisional alignment that that sets this up, or could there be a shift? in terms of it makes more sense for Team X to be in this pool rather than with the rest of their division? Because I just keep hearing yourself and Elliot sort of carefully not saying division, or maybe I'm just hearing things. No, you're not hearing things. You know, that's been contemplated that it might not be divisions. I mean, I think ideally it is the divisions, but there could be a scenario where that doesn't make full sense. You know, I'll give you an example. In the Atlantic division, you know, you have Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Boston, Buffalo, all all within – very short flights geographically aligned, but you also have Florida and Tampa in that division, you know, a three hour flight to the South, you know, there's a chance if Dallas say is, is, you know, one of the sites that gets chosen that potentially those Florida teams could end up somewhere like Dallas. And, and you know, I just draw that up as a, you know, a, for example of, of a way that this 
might end up happening. And so I do think that there could be some room here to shift things around. What I'm not entirely clear on, and I don't believe the league and the players association have got to this degree of detail in their discussions, but you know, how that would then work for the first round, because, you know, my understanding is obviously once you get teams settled into these sites, I think you would want to restrict the movement between the sites. And, and so it would make sense that, you know, if you're based in Columbus, for example, to finish regular season, that's probably where you play your first round games. I don't know exactly how that would impact the playoffs. And if they'd allow one or two teams to move, say before the first round, um, you know, and again, I'm not sure if that's fully mapped out just yet, but I, I do know for certain that it's not, they're not fully married to it only being the divisions. I just think the divisions largely will be what you see because, you know, most of those teams are geographically in the same regions. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, uh, we saw some news uh, that we were expecting for a while finally come through today. The, I guess, extension of the NHL's uh, agreements with European leagues. But there were a couple unique notes that at least caught my eye. It's in a one-year extension for most of the leagues in Europe, but not the Swiss A League. What is different about the agreement with Swiss A than what we've seen with, say, Austria, Sweden, Finland, and others? Well, I don't know the exact parameters of what we're dealt with there, but the the reason that one was left to the side is because there wasn't an agreement in place. And so they Hmm. didn't have an agreement at this point in time um, to to just extend the way they did the others. And I do think in a perfect world, in in a a non-COVID world, uh, you probably would have saw longer-term extensions in all these cases and some changes to the way these things work because I do think the league was, was somewhere down the... The, the road in, on having those discussions with the federations, but, you know, with COVID-19 taking over all of the, the NHL resources really since the start of March, um, you know, they, they decided to put those things to the side, uh, agree to extend the current contract, uh, the current contracts with the, the European nations by a year. And then I think revisit those, those sort of conversations down the road. And, you know, now in the short term, what it does is it allows, you know, a number of players, that have been playing in Europe to, to sign deals with, with NHL teams. You know, a lot of those deals have been kind of uh, agreed upon virtually. Not, I can't even call it a handshake deal anymore, but have been put in a drawer somewhere and, and, and worked out, and, and now those things can be filed. And so I think a lot of this was procedural. Where it'll get interesting, though, is a year from now because you know, they also extended the Canadian Hockey League agreement, and, and I do think there was some discussion, again, prior to you know the pandemic, taking everyone's attention away to, to maybe having – some consideration to have uh, teenagers play in the AHL, uh, you know, that, that come from CHL teams, uh, some, some sort of mechanism to work that out. And, and so while that isn't happening right now, I do think it is a conversation for another day. And perhaps this time next year, we'll be looking at some, some different transfer agreements. That's long been uh, one of the things I've never understood. The CHL, the only league on earth where uh, they can hold back a player from advancing. A 19-year-old cannot if they're drafted out of the CHL, go into play in the American League only to the NHL club. Uh, what has been, the, I guess, the the build-up to this? Because it, it hasn't made sense for a long time from my perspective. Now, I don't own a junior team. It's probably different from that perspective. But why now is the NHL getting some traction to change this? Well, I just think it's the degree of pushback has got to the point where it's it's more likely to happen. And, you know, the reason it's been this way prior to now is I think – there was a view that, you know, some, some individual hurt uh, was worth it for the cause, that, that the better the CHL was as a league, everyone benefited from having, you know, pretty high-level competition uh, in that league. But, you know, I think as we've seen the NHL get younger, the desire to incorporate 
um, you know, players into the lineup sooner, probably arguably have 18 and 19 year olds arriving to the NHL a little bit more ready to play than, than maybe they did in years gone by. I think some of that is, has led to the pressure here, but, but, you know, ultimately, obviously this is an agreement struck between two leagues. And if, you know, the league, if the NHL agrees to do this, the CHL has every right to enforce it. But, you know, the way I see it is the NHL has a fair bit of leverage. And so, you know, I'm sure there's, there's things they can do to compensate the Canadian hockey league to make this happen. I'm sure it'll be, there'll be some kind of limitations, whether it's former first round picks or, or some, some sort of caveat. I don't, I doubt it'll be, every 19-year-old player can suddenly be assigned to the AHL instead of his team in the CHL. But, you know, I, I do think that this is going to loosen a little bit, uh, you know, once they have time to, to sit down and really make a new deal. And then a final one on the, uh, the transfer agreements. Status quo for Russia, meaning there is no agreement and that if a player is under contract in the KHL or in the NHL, they're off limits for the others. That's, that's my understanding of what's in place? Yep, that, that continues to be the case. And, and it's been that way for a long time. I think all the way back to when Alex Radulov first left Nashville to go to the KHL. Uh, that was in, in contravention. The NHL felt of an agreement that was in place, and I don't think a new one was ever struck after that, that period of time. So things have worked that way. You know, one of the caveats, of course, is that the Russian players do have an ability in some cases to buy out their deals. Uh, so, you know, there, there's maybe a little bit of flexibility that exists there that, that might not in other places, and, and there have been guys in the past who basically paid money to their team to become a free agent. And, and so... There's a bit of wiggle room, but there's still uh, still not a whole lot of agreement, I guess, on the NHL and the KHL side of those, those types of uh, you know, player transfers. Chris Johnson with us uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays here on Pinder and Steinberg. Patty. Well, I guess, CJ, is, as uh, we we wrap things up, um, just a thought on the, the Ivan Holinka being cancelled. Uh, I know that this probably doesn't come as a big surprise, but because it was in August, I think there was still some hope that maybe this thing could get done. Uh, just a thought on, on why that decision had to be made and, and ultimately why they went down that road. Well, honestly, I think a lot of it's tied to the fact the Oilers want to leave that, that window open to potentially yeah. be considered a host for these decentralized games and and so you know I, I don't know all that has to go on with the government and the league to make that happen but i certainly think it's something the oilers as an organization want to do and and you know let's face it i i don't know what the travel situation is going to be at that point uh, for the teams you know i think that the writing is was a little bit on the wall we've seen other international events you know of similar uh, quality i guess canceled here in the last few weeks and, and this was the next one to go but you know I, I do think that that part of the timing here is is the oilers uh, making it clear to the NHL that they have an open building and, and a willingness to work with the league and the government to try to make it happen to to be able to host NHL games in July and August. Yeah. Uh, from a developmental standpoint and, and from a, a scouting standpoint, I know we don't even know when the draft is going to be held, but what does that do? Uh, how does that affect things? How does that uh, you know change some of the uh, NHL scouting um, kind of regular um, just kind of the regular case of business because we, we know how important that is for scouting the next year's draft. Well, the one thing about that tournament, because it's in the summer, it's truly best on best for the age group. And, you know, there is typically an under-18 world championship held in the spring. But, for example, if you have CHL players still involved in, in a Memorial Cup chase, they're not able to go. And so, you know, it's 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 a, it's a an opportunity missed. And, and, you know, certainly for players of that age, because it is a, you know an under-18 tournament, um, you know, it's, it's potentially your one chance to play in that event is, is now gone. Uh, so that there's missed opportunity there. I, you know, I think what I'll be curious to see is, 
is where we end up with the World Junior Tournament. And, and you know, it's probably a little premature to even speculate just yet, but, you know, I, I don't know if they're going to be able to have the summer camps as they normally would uh, in August. And, and, you know, certainly given where we're at with the number of sports really canceled through July and August, you know, it's not that far off till December. And, and so, you know, that'll be the real big one I think people will be interested in. But, um, you know, th- this – I guess the good news for those players is is they're they're still pretty young. There's still time for them to play somewhere to to get noticed and get scouted. But you know that's a that's a big event for a lot of guys heading into their draft year to to make a name to to build some positive momentum. And you know that's that's been removed because it wasn't postponed today. It was canceled, so it won't be held anywhere or in any way. Thank you, CJ. We will uh, talk to you on Thursday. No problem, guys. Have a great one. See ya. Chris Johnston, our NHL insider, he joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on Pinder and Steinberg. ton of good information there, and uh, whether it be about what the NHL and, and some of the transactional rules are after uh, everything resumes or what the pitfalls and, and likelihood of actually resuming this season are going to be. He joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on the program. From hockey to football, our boy John Bender joins us next. The CFL draft a couple days away. Let's uh, revisit John Bender's path to professional football. Our uh, good buddy, Big Maple, joins us next on Pinder and Steinberg. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Strange times for sure. Sportsnet 960, the fan, is here for you. No sports, no problem. Pinder and Steinberg continues right now on Sportsnet 960, the fan. CFL draft two days away in just over 48 hours time the Calgary Stampeders will be on the clock with the number one overall selection of the 2020 CFL draft uh they got that number one overall pick by the Nick Arbuckle trade and then signing in Ottawa a few weeks later the draft goes at four o'clock Calgary time on Thursday now a gentleman who's a former 17th overall selection of the Calgary Stampeders in the CFL draft and a former member of the Stamps and also just all-round good human being our buddy John Bender joins us in the program what's up Bender what's going on hey not too much guys how you doing we're doing all right good doing all right what's uh Pinder was just telling us. Pinder, break it down for us. Um, the boys, the Twinders, love Big Maple, and uh, Johnny has uh, done them a solid by getting them some Star Wars gear. Can you break that down for us? Well, they've always loved Big John. I, I think John probably came picked me up on the way to a Stamps game once, or maybe it was softball or something back in the day, and they just marveled at the size of the human that is Big John. And he would, like, pick them up and hold them, like, at his shoulder height. It was just like going to the top of the Calgary Tower. Very exciting. But uh, John listens to the show. He knows the boys have been uh, big into Star Wars. And, uh, Johnny, your care package for the little men, sanitized, washed, and now has not left their grip since. So thank you for the Star Wars Yeah, for sure. I'm glad they enjoyed that, I'm sure. It's uh, tough for all the kids being locked up inside now, I'm sure, just like the rest of us. So I'm glad they could uh, you know, find something there and have a little fun with it. R2-D2 and uh, D.O., the uh, robot uh, cinema cups with detachable toys on the top. Uh, just a huge hit. Phenomenal stuff. Great. Good to hear. You seem so enthusiastic about it, John. I'm, I'm... <laughs> we FaceTime with big john the boys love it is he more does he have more energy than what he has right now do we just wake you up for a nap bender <laughs> no nah, i'm 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 a pretty mellow person so i'm kind of always here 
I know that when I go in there and I see the text line, a lot of people say that I'm uh, monotone, but I guess that's just who I am. So this is this is how it goes. Love you to death. Um, and if you've ever seen, if you ever want to see a guy to absolutely hammer a slow pitch pitch, uh, 350 feet with only moving his arms, uh, you got to watch Bender play slow pitch. It's incredible. Um, what? Uh, how, how interested are you in Thursday's CFL draft? How much of an eye on that will you have, knowing that we uh, just had the NFL draft wrap up a couple days ago? Yeah, I mean, it's a big draft for a lot of CFL teams. I mean, any team that's, you know, done well in the CFL the last few years has had great Canadian talent, and they developed that Canadian talent by drafting well. So, I mean, you know, just like any other pro league, you know, if you can get some good, young, controllable talent that you can, you know, get, you know, reasonable salaries on and get some guys in there that can play and, you know, early in their careers they can go out there and contribute, I think that you're going to be very successful and. uh Calgary Stampeders have been a team that have been able to do that over the last few years and, um, you know, probably the better part of the last decade. And, you know, now they found a way to get the number one overall pick. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they're, they're very excited that they're going to find a difference maker that hopefully can help them, you know, break down that ratio a little bit better so they can, you know, I don't think everybody realizes that, you know, there's a certain amount of Canadian players that need to be on a CFL roster and a certain amount of Canadian starters. So, if you can uh, find a player like the Calgary San Peters have over the years, whether it's John Cornish or Brad Sinopoli or Alex Singleton, that makes a big difference in your ratio because they're an elite CFL player and they're a Canadian, and I think that makes a big difference. And, uh, you know, I think that they'll be looking for one of those as well. So take us through your draft year, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but and, and the, the big difference between the NFL draft and the CFL draft is in the NFL draft, you have to declare for the draft, and that makes you no longer eligible to play in the NCAA, whereas in the CFL, it's not the same thing. You were drafted with college eligibility remaining, right? Yeah, they've changed those rules since. Uh, the way that it worked was uh, it used to be your fourth year of college playing. You got drafted in the CFL whether you wanted to or not. It was just your CFL draft year. So in 2010, for me, it was my CFL draft year. Uh, depending on the borough rankings, I was ranked number one, number two, something like that, top five on most of them. But I had another year of college, and um, you know they were assuming that I would have an opportunity to play in the NFL, at least what the media guys were writing about. And uh, as a result, I mean, you know, with a year of eligibility and not knowing if I would show up, I mean, obviously I wasn't going to be one of the top draft picks. So um, I ended up getting drafted 17th overall by the Calgary Stampeders. Um, I mean, it was unique for me. I hadn't even heard from the Calgary Stampeders at all, you know, up to the pre-draft moment. So heard from a lot of the other CFL teams, but I wasn't sure, you know, how it would all play out. And I don't think anybody is. I think that's the thing about the NFL draft. I've talked to lots of guys that have been drafted by teams I've never heard from before. And that's just, um, you know, it's a waiting game. You just wait and see what happens. And when you get an opportunity, you try to make the best of it. Were you, because you, so you get drafted in the 2010 draft, 17th overall, and then you went back and, and you played another year at Nevada. So, did you, like, what type of NFL interest were you getting during that time? Um, I mean, depending on different media publications, you know, some of them had me as potentially a top 100 draft pick in the NFL draft for the next year. Um, I mean, you know, some different publications, you know, said that I might be one of the better NFL prospects out of Nevada, which is, you know, unique and rare now considering Colin Kaepernick was there, Virgil Green, some other guys. But I don't know. It's, um, 
the way that it played out, I didn't get drafted as a guard. A lot of offensive guards don't get drafted. Um, with the lockout the year that year, the undrafted free agents couldn't be signed. So I kind of got into, uh, you know, uh, no man's land where I didn't get drafted. I couldn't get signed. My student visa was about to run out. What should I do? So I ended up signing with the Calgary Stampeders. And uh, the CFL gave me a great opportunity, and I wanted to go make the most of it. But, you know, I got a staph infection in my rookie season, and that shut me down, and that was pretty much the end of football for me. So, I mean, uh, things can change quickly and change fast. So, I mean, to go from, you know, being one of the, you know, hopefully getting NFL drafted, our team went 13-1 and that year. I thought I had a good season, but, I mean, some scouts maybe didn't didn't agree with that. So, you know, here we are, we move on in life. But, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's all very interesting how it plays out with where you go and what opportunities you get when you get there. Well, it's funny because we've been talking with some different CFL prospects over the last week or so, and and a few of them, um, namely quarterback Nathan Rourke, who we talked to, and and receiver Deshaun Brissett, both guys entered last weekend's NFL draft with NFL interest. Neither of them ended up getting drafted, and and to this point, neither have signed one of those priority free agent contracts either, but they were kind of in a spot where they were like, okay, well, I might have NFL, I might be going down the NFL road, but I know the CFL is going to take me because I'm canadian it's it's kind of a an interesting spot to be in try and put yourself back in your shoes being in a similar spot and and in their shoes now knowing that there's kind of two forks in the road that they 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 might end up going down yeah i mean as a rookie i mean whether you're playing nfl cfl i mean you look for your best opportunity to play and i mean the interesting part of all this i think a lot of people don't realize is there's 32 nfl teams and there's only nine cfl teams so there's actually, you know, lots of opportunity to get an opportunity to get looked at in the NFL. Obviously, it's better caliber players generally, bigger players, maybe a little bit different skill sets. But, I mean, every player is going to take an opportunity to take a look at the NFL draft, see if they can get an opportunity to get into an NFL training camp. And from there, I mean, as a Canadian, in the back of your mind, you kind of always have, you know, I'm a Canadian, I should have a good opportunity in the CFL. But depending on where you land, I mean – you know, it all depends on what roster players they have at your position there, you know, what their contracts look like. I mean, there's a lot of um, different, you know, aspects that maybe you don't realize. I think when the Calgary Stampeders drafted me in the third round, they drafted J. Michael Dean right after me as well. So they drafted two guys with a year away, and uh, both of us were went back to school in the fall, and then both of us ended up on the Calgary Stampeders that next May. And I think that was something that they weren't expecting. And I think that, you know, these other players – they might be in different spots and different scenarios as well where, you know, maybe it's an opportunity. And, you know, if you play in the CFL and you play well, you can make a lot of money and have a lot of opportunities and, you know, have a great career. And if you end up somewhere where maybe you don't get opportunities, then your career can be over short, can be over uh, pretty quickly as well. With John Bender, uh, former Calgary Stampeders draft pick, former Stamp himself, joining us on Pinder and Steinberg this afternoon. Johnny, uh, I, I know you're not biased at all, but with the stamps sitting at one, I mean, I'm sure there's uh, there's a, a number of positions they could go to, but would you perhaps have one that you'd hope they'd go uh, select? <laughs> I mean, obviously, you look at any CFL team. I mean, most football teams, if you ask me, they're going to be built around that offensive line because, I mean, of course I'm going to say that I'm an offensive lineman, and I think that that's where the way that I see the game through my eyes. But, I mean, you look at Carter O'Donnell. He's a great offensive lineman out of the University of Alberta, the Red Deer kid, local kid. He's big. He's athletic. He looks like he might even be able to play tackle. 
if you can get an offensive lineman that plays in the CFL that can play tackle, that potentially becomes, you know, one of those ratio breakers that I talked about before. So, I mean, typically in the CFL, your center and your two guards are going to be Canadian, the inside guys on the offensive line. The outside guys are often American positions. So, you know, your left tackles. Um, and then if that right tackle could be Canadian, well, now, you know, you're getting a little bit further ahead. Maybe you can put some more speed on the defense then with a safety that's American or a D lineman or whatever the case might be. So, I mean, they're probably going to look long and hard at the offensive line and see if there's an opportunity for them to fill a gap there. And uh, if they can do that, then I mean, that's generally the position you go. I mean, if they do draft, say, Nathan Work as a quarterback, probably not an opportunity for him to beat out Bull Levi Mitchell right away. But, you know, he, maybe. You never know. Yeah, fair enough. So how disappointed will you be if it's not an old lineman, John? <laughs> I wouldn't say I'd be disappointed. I think the linebacker, D-line, I think that any of those positions, they have a good opportunity to play. If they go, say, like wide receiver or running back, I'd be shocked because it's, you know, just the amount of talent you can find in American positions at those that, um, you know, generally bigger gaps as far as, you know, more speed and more, you know, Canada's known for making better linemen better linebackers, things like that. You know, you can go down to places like Florida and Louisiana and find a whole lot of speed and play wide receiver and a lot of guys that have played football for a long time that have a maybe a you know different skill set, different mentality than some of the Canadian position players that have those positions. But, you know, there has been some Canadian wide receivers that have, you know, really grown in the CFL and really flourished. You you look at uh, one of the guys I was rookies with with Brad Sinopoli one of the most interesting stories in the CFL I tell people is me and Brad Sinopoli got released, you know, days apart. Brad Sinopoli had moved to Newfoundland. Like, he had no plans to play football, had moved in with his, I think, fiancé at the time. The Calgary Stampeders brought him back week seven, eight, something like that. Any team in the CFL could have had him for those six weeks. And now Brad Sinopoli is probably going to be a CFL Hall of Famer as a wide receiver. <laughs> so... I mean, it's it's wild, you know, what opportunities you get. They bring him in to be a third-string quarterback because Drew Tate got hurt. They needed somebody to run scout team wide receiver. He starts running scout team wide receiver. They say, oh, he's pretty good. Maybe we should play him. Then he gets an opportunity to play. Obviously, he ends up going to Ottawa later on in his career. And he's still playing, you know. I saw him last year. He was in Calgary. I was joking with him. He was one of the guys that doesn't have hair now, and we were rookies together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's into his mm. 30s now, still playing the CFL. Crazy. Uh, one, uh, I guess, not draft-specific one, but the trade that led to that, what are your expectations for Nick Arbuckle with the Red Blacks? You know, I think that he's, you know, he's grown really, you know, he's really grown as a quarterback here with the Calgary Stampeders. You look at the Calgary Stampeders hierarchy of coaching staff, whether it's Dave Dickinson, John Huffnagel, you know, Bo Levi Mitchell, the guys that he was around, the guys that he was able to learn from. And I'm sure he was just like a sponge and, you know, soaked up every bit of information he could and made the most of it. And, uh, you know, some of the American guys come up here and they spend a lot of time here. Sounds like he was here for about a part of the winter as well and spending every time, every minute he could, learning about the CFL game, growing. And when he got an opportunity to play, I mean, he was one of those guys that was really able to hit the ground running. And, uh, you know, played really well. And now he's turned that into an opportunity with another team. And he should make a, you know, good amount of money out there in Ottawa. And uh, he should be able to win a lot of football games as well and uh, have an opportunity to, you know, compete in the East. Bender, it's funny you uh, you bring up the name Carter O'Donnell, the U of A O-lineman. He's, he's signed in the NFL. He signed a priority deal with the Colts. Um, 
like how much should that the, the stamps have got the number one overall pick and there are players I, I look at jordan williams the linebacker who i think is the odds-on favorite to go number one overall he's kind of that singleton clone who uh sat out a year to get his canadian eligibility and and had himself a really good ncaa career uh, but if if they are looking o-line how much should they be scared away from a guy who is signed already in the nfl it really depends on what their goal is long-term. I mean, if they look at their offensive line unit now as being they don't have anything to worry about, they would be fine with the unit now going into training camp. Well, there's a good chance that Carter O'Donnell, I mean, if you get an undrafted free agent, your chances of making the NFL team are you know, 50-50-ish, maybe less. So, I mean, if they have an opportunity to pick him up later in the year or, you know, maybe even next year and sign him to a rookie deal and get an opportunity to keep him for another, you know, three, four years from there, then maybe that's something they look at. I mean, the Calgary Stampeders, um, their general managers, their coaches are probably, you know, tops in the CFL, the class of the CFL. So I trust them and that they have a good idea what they want to do. And, um, you know, that they know what positions on their roster they need to fill and what salary cap roles they need. So, I mean, it's all going to play into it, but I'm sure that they have, you know, reviewed this and gone over all the different scenarios that they want to play out. But, yeah, I'd say, yeah, that linebacker, the offensive lineman, you know, D-line maybe, but those would probably be the positions I'd be looking for them to draft. Just a few more with our boy John Bender, former Calgary Stampeder, with us on Pinder and Steinberg this afternoon. Tell us about being a drafted player. Um, and, and, you know, Jordan Williams spoke about it with us last week and the advantages that being a Canadian in the CFL bring. But tell us about, you know, what goes along once you are drafted and, and being a drafted player in the in the league in terms of opportunities and in terms of, you know, being given the chance to, to play and, and stick around long term. Yeah, you know, for me, I I always looked at my football career as no matter where I played or what I did, I wanted to finish my career in Calgary. And that was before I got drafted by the Stampeders or anything happened because I saw how many, you know, look at, you know, you can look at the businesses downtown Calgary, and I don't need to name anybody, I don't want to forget anybody, but, you know, there's lots of Calgary Stampeders alumni that have gone on to great business careers in the community and really grown this community as well. So, I mean, if I played in the CFL, NFL, wherever I played, I knew that I wanted to finish my career in Calgary because I knew I wanted to be here long term. And if I had an opportunity to do that, then that would be great. So, I mean, I got drafted by the Calgary Stampeders, so that all worked out, you know, better than I could have imagined. And when I got to Calgary, I mean, you know, I was just like a little kid. You know, I walked in the locker room, and, you know, the first guy that said hi to me was Henry Burris. And, you know, those guys walked over to me and Joffrey Reynolds and, you know, John Cornish and Rob Cote, a guy that I played high school with, and then watched him play, you know, pro. And, you know, having an opportunity to do that was, you know, awesome and great. And, I mean, I know it didn't work out the way I wanted it to and probably not the way the Calgary St. Peters wanted it to, but I still, you know, one of the best years of my life and some of the greatest memories. Very cool. Uh, I always forget that you and Cote both played Cochrane High. You Cochrane boys, uh, you, 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 do pretty, you do pretty well at the next level, hey? Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, from our coaching staff on down, I mean, we had, you know, very talented group of players and, you know, guys that – you know, really made uh, made it important, whether it was coaches or players and everybody put together. I think that, uh, you know, they do football a little bit differently in Cochrane than they do most places in Canada. So, you know, I was, you know, I really enjoyed my time there and a lot of the friendships I made and a lot of the players have uh, gone on to have great careers after. Thanks, Bender. Good chatting with you, buddy. Enjoy the uh, CFL draft on Thursday, my man, and uh, stay safe. All right, for sure. Thank you. Fingers crossed for uh, an O-lineman. That's uh <laughs> Make that happen. Yeah, exactly. I There's... kid. I, I, I don't. I don't know anything about this stuff relative to 
what uh, you and Johnny are dialed in on, Patty. But uh, Singleton Part Two, I think, would sit very well with with the fan base. So would a guy that you could plug in for a half decade on the O line. But that uh, being signed sure is a big, uh, you know, fly in the ointment if you're looking at O'Donnell. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, look, there's no guarantee that he wouldn't be able to to play and i mean we don't know what the timeline is looking like for uh football this year because of what's going on in the world so i think that changes things dramatically too Uh, but i i just look at it and say because a guy who's signed uh, is o'donnell gonna get as much a chance in indianapolis as chase claypool will in pittsburgh or neville gallimore will in dallas probably not because those two canadians got drafted and top three round picks like those guys are going to be given every opportunity because of how much capital how much value there is in an nfl draft pick the priority signings aren't draft picks you're not using one of your seven picks so there's a little bit less of an opportunity there but they're still going to be given every opportunity and under regular circumstances in a non-pandemic world if we remember what that was like um in a non-pandemic world you're still talking about guys who are going to go through the otas and go through the mini camps and go through training camp and you're not going to be talking about them being available until sometime in september so if you're looking at somebody to fill a role right now going with that guy isn't the way to go if you're looking at more of a long-term play as johnny was talking about then you could go down that road but that jordan williams and i've talked to a number of people around the league there's a lot of league people outside of the stampeders who believe that williams is the natural fit to go to calgary Uh, not just because of the singleton comparisons but just because he's a damn good football player um but you know and 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 even talking to some people with a little bit more knowledge of maybe what the stamps might do there's a feel that that's a guy they're they're looking at really really closely too so uh i if if i were to put money on it i think the ecu linebacker jordan williams is the guy that goes number one overall but uh there's there's a lot that could uh, happen between now and then and uh who knows do the stamps even go at number one or do they trade down and try to get more picks you never know about those things and that happens plenty of time in the cfl draft as well but always good to catch up with uh, john bender who has had a rough go in our uh, radio hacks fantasy league hey it has not been a good couple of years for johnny well i mean if you measure success by trade proposals he's probably the best gm in the league but uh, jason wins and strict wins and losses been a tougher go for no doubt about it yeah (laughs) deforest has got to cool it with the trades too every day you got He's like getting four different proposals for 19 different players. Like, what are you trying to do here? Like, are you just trying to shake your team up or shake the league up, or are you actually aiming at doing something? Remember fantasy uh, yeah, football? Yeah, not sending a message to my team. Uh, Jay, they don't actually know. that You, you can't just put guys <laughs> in the rumor mill and they're going to play better. It doesn't work that way. Shh, I'll give him credit. On that. I think that was his first ever fantasy sports experience was joining our 960 Radio Hacks League, and he went from – seller dweller totally out of his league and uh, like he's uh he made a deep run last year he's put together some good teams he's he's on the better half of the league in the last i want to say three four years well maybe three yeah he has been good he has been good i will give him that but the trade proposals can beat it by the way john bender joining us on the atlas pizza and sports uh atlas pizza and sports bar guest hotline bar may be closed to patrons right now but they are open for business pickup or delivery available call 403-248-3344 that's 403-248-3344 quick break when we come back our 20 
sorry, let's try that again. Our 2002 NHL redraft. We've been doing these. We started at 1997, kind of, uh, but it's up to 2002 is where we are today. Rick Nash went number one overall in 2002. If we were to redraft today, knowing all of what we know, would that still be the case? We'll find out next. It's Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Welcome back to the program. Into uh, the final couple hours, the top of the hour. If you missed our chat with Chris Johnston, we will hear that again. Plus, Rowdy Tellez of the Toronto Blue Jays stopped by with us today. It was pretty good. Uh, might hear that conversation one more time uh, about a really important initiative the Blue Jays are doing and Tellez's path to the majors and what this year might look like from a Blue Jays standpoint. we got Pinder at Shea Pinder. Logo, Logan Gordon, is hanging out at our base. Basement Systems downtown studio. My name is Pat Steinberg back here in my Beltline office. And uh, as we've done numerous times over the last little bit, it's time to look back at a past NHL draft. We've had a lot of fun doing these redrafts. And today we're looking back at 2002. This is where we would hear that sweet splitter that we had made up. Do we have it ready to go, Logo, or no? The superstars, the busts, the jaw-dropping Are you able to get it or no? It's time to revisit another NHL draft. Where's our, where's our production? What, are we, is our computer broken? What's going on? All right. my best. Logo, do we not have production for this? Like, There's no way we can get it? I wanted to hear it. Just move along, Pat. It's probably a move, huh? All right. I guess there's something else going on back at the studio. Um, it is time for the 2002 NHL redraft uh, with apparently just Pinder and Steinberg. It was at the Air Canada Center in Toronto. Uh, Rick Nash would go number one overall in this uh, 2002 draft. And as we look back on it, I'm curious, Mr. Pinder, where would Rick Nash go in this draft, knowing all that we knew about his career and the rest of the players who were selected in O two? Um, would Rick Nash be your number one guy, or no. would somebody else jump ahead of him? For me, the latter. I'm curious as to where you are. He's a top five pick, maybe a top three, depending on your preference and who you include as eligible, but he's not my number one guy. Uh, he had an incredible career probably not a hall of fame career. And I think there are hall of fame players from this class. Um, at least one, I would think two, potentially three. Well, and I'm with you. I, I have Nash going in the top three, uh, but, and I, I think Rick Nash will, will make a case for himself to be in the hall of fame, not just for his NHL work, but what he's done for team Canada and, and internationally. I think Rick Nash is, is probably a hall of famer when it's all said and done. And, and he leads this class in terms of overall points with more than 800 career NHL points. Um, but Duncan Keith is the guy that I would go number one overall when it's all said and done. He was a second-round pick in 02, number 54 overall. Um, I, I think of all the guys who went in this draft, Keith is the highest-end player, the most surefire Hall of Famer, the guy who's got the multiple cups, all that type of stuff. If it were me, Duncan Keith would be the guy that goes number one overall. 
that's who I have going number one overall. And the only guy that I think really has any competition with him is a guy that was eligible for this draft but was never even taken, Mark Giordano. Yep. Now you uh, you would have you would have him going ahead of Keith. No, I think it's the only guy that's close though, and like uh, the, the Keith's career got started earlier, even though he was a guy that went uh, junior A college back to the Western League, now to pros. Um, like he wasn't a jump in at eighteen guy, but um, that said, um, Giordano's the only guy close. If you look at. Um, well, and I shouldn't say that. I mean, you could make a strong case for Jay Bolmeister, who was an incredibly highly touted youngster. But uh, those three defensemen, you could make a great case for going right at the top. Rick Nash was your electrifying scorer. Those three defensemen. Um, and then a couple pretty solid netminders that amassed uh, around over 640 games each, two of them. But uh, it's it's actually interesting. The more you look at it, it's it's a draft class that's, characterized by strength on the blue line yep because uh, I, I think geo has to be in that conversation of being uh, a top five pick anyway i don't know i don't know where it's it's strange because you take a look at at geo's career and um the 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 back half of it he's got a norris and he's been one of the best defensemen in the nhl for what the better half of the last half decade uh, he's been yep. probably a top 10 nhl defenseman in this league but you know jay bomeister has has been you know this this high-end defense been able to log a ton of minutes you know right from the beginning of his career in the first say 15 years of his career and and we know that jay is we don't know whether or not jay's going to be able to resume his career after what happened in that game against anaheim earlier this year and and you know rick nash was a perennial 35 goal scorer in this league almost every year playing on a bad team in columbus and he's got his multiple gold medals at the olympics and what he's done at the world championships i like it's it's really hard like Beyond Keith, who I think is the guy that would go number one for me, it's it's tough to say between Nash, Geo, Bomeister, who would be that next guy at number two. It's it's tough to wrap your head around how how that would end up going. Yeah, and and I guess what it really illustrates when we start measuring Jordana, who of course didn't get drafted, be it the OHL draft, NHL draft, as an overage or never got drafted, um, is that it feels like the story is not done on what Giordano has accomplished in his career. Well, it does feel like a lot of these other guys, even if they are playing while well, their best years are behind them. And here's what they accomplished in their careers. Well, Giordano's still building that resume because he's such a late bloomer. I mean, you start realizing he's the same age or older than a lot of these guys in this draft class. Like, Bolmeister might not ever play again. Dennis Weidman hasn't played for a couple of years. Duncan Keith is clearly well into the back nine. You know, Johnny Boychuk ain't what he was. Yanni Pitkinen hasn't been in the league for eons. You know, Wisniewski, Gilbert, Whitney, Ian White. Like, these are all old guys. Keith Ballard, how long has it been since we heard that guy's name? I mean, it really illustrates how much of an outlier Giordano is to be playing such great hockey at the age he's doing it. And so while I, I can tell you I know how I feel about Rick Nash's career, like a cup run for Mark Giordano changes everything, doesn't it? 
Cubs. I think so. I mean, I think it certainly puts him into the conversation. I, I wonder where he would be. Logo, weigh in on this. I'm curious as to where you are on, on you know, the top of this draft class. Are you with us? Or I, I think you're on the same page that Keith would be that guy at number one. But, like, where are you? Does, is, is Keith that guy for you? Does, does Nash deserve to still be in that top three? How does Geo fit into this conversation from 02? Yeah, I'm I'm with you guys with Duncan Keith being the the class of this draft for sure. No one really comes close to him as far as, you know, what he was able to do winning with the Chicago franchise and clearly he's the best defenseman out of this draft. Giordano makes an interesting case to be in there because of his late success, but how you judge longevity compared to, you know, being a late bloomer and all that is is hard to kind of quantify. I think Bo Meester's there because of his longevity and what he's been able to do later in his career as far as actually winning something. But mm-hmm. I, I think I still put Rick Nash in there for me as a top five guy, even though it really kind of petered off. Because there was a time when Rick Nash was, I, I think, an elite forward in the league, and that's something that we found hard to find in most of these drafts. The other interesting thing, boys, is that he was such an – enigmatic and infuriating player but the career Alex Semen had just based on the numbers never mind the expectations mm-hmm. I mean his point production isn't really off much from Rick Nash's and on a per game basis he was just you know would drove people nuts and got bought out and eventually the league was done with him but when he played he was a really good hockey player especially when he was dialed in He's probably still a top like seven pick in this draft. I, I I had him in just outside my top five. Like when he was dialed and when he was into playing, Alex Simmons a point per game player in the NHL. Like he's, it's it's Crazy. not a um it's not a complete and an utter stretch to talk about that. I mean, you take a look at his two best seasons. He went back to back with seventy nine points in sixty two games and eighty four points in seventy three sure. games. Like. Those are good numbers. He was a point-per-game guy when he returned to the league after the lockout and signed with Carolina, had 44-44. and 44. Like, this this is a really good player, but you're right. Enigmatic would just start to be begin to describe him. I think it was enigmatic, and, and I don't think it's fair to say the guy was lazy. I don't, th- I don't know if he ever and, – and that's less a criticism than it is just the facts. The guy was extremely naturally talented, but – didn't have the same drive or desire or willingness to whatever the word you want to use is was was never as dialed in and as as his countryman and teammate Alex Ovechkin to put in that work or you know what the other great players of of his era the Crosby's the the Ovechkin's the Malkin's guys who I think he's got similar talent levels to but Huh. never really wanted to apply himself the same way. And and you know what? Uh, I, that sounds critical or derogatory, and I guess it is. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, had he had that same type of commitment, I think we're talking about him as, as one of the really good players from this past era in the league. Not not unfair at all. Um, well, how do you rank the goalies in this class? There was two guys that probably don't get – maybe appreciate it as much as they they should. Like Cam Ward won a cup with Central in that run that uh, Carolina had. And Kari Lettinen, uh surprisingly, uh, a game shy of 650. That is a ton for an NHL net miner. His career save percentage, 912. That, that's 
It's very, very solid numbers for the guy that went number two to the Atlanta Thrashers. I think Kari Lettinen would be in a much different class when it comes to this draft, uh, and our boy Brent Cron would be able to, to talk to this because he was a teammate of Kari's for quite some time. You know, as a number two overall pick, did Lettinen turn into what you would have liked? You know, Luongo was a number two or a number three pick. Lettinen is, is not Luongo. When Lettinen was healthy, he was an unbelievable goaltender. Like when, when Lettinen yeah. was able to play and wasn't dogged by the injuries that he had to endure throughout his entire career, um, then, then Lettinen was an elite goaltender or bordering on it. But because of those injuries, and you talk to different people, there were uh, conditioning uh, questions and, and whether or not it was less of a, a drive thing than it was just, hey, does, does this guy have the, the conditioning to be able to play 65 games on a regular basis and be a, a 9-20, goaltender? But when he was healthy, he was a really good player, and he was a big part of some success in Dallas. And, and, and I, I know that near the end, it was that really bad year when they went out and they, they just couldn't get a save in the playoffs from either Lettinen or Niemi. But, I mean, he had some really good seasons there. So should he have been number two? No, but he was still a pretty good goaltender who, who ended up getting just shy, as you mentioned, of 700 games. And Cam Ward won the Cup and, and the Conn Smythe or, um, or, or was a, a huge part of that run for Carolina in 2006. So there were some good goalies. I don't know if either of them will go down as, as Hall of Famers, but pretty good goalies in this group. Um, it, it was a good solid draft, Patty. Like the high end wasn't great, but boy, there was a lot of players that got 10 or more seasons in the NHL. Like I'm thinking almost 30 guys that uh, managed 10 seasons or more. That feels like a really, really high number to me. And there's just a lot of solid hockey players in here that, you know, aren't your stars, aren't going to be on billboards, but boy, they can help you. You know, like Jared Stoll, Johnny Boychuk, Boyd Gordon. Even Gregory Campbell, 12 seasons. Yuri Hoodler's in here. Chris Higgins. There's a lot of good role players in here in sort of middle and bottom half of the roster, guys. Yeah, in terms of sleepers, gents, it's uh, Logan Gordon, Ryan Pinder, Pat Steinberg along with you. We're redrafting the 2002 NHL draft. In terms of some of the sleepers in there, uh, you take a look at a couple of third-round picks. Valtteri Filpola, Franz Nielsen, uh, 95th to the Red Wings for Filpola, 87 to the Islanders for Nielsen. Both really good NHLers. Uh, never elite guys, but you know, from an analytics standpoint, gents, uh, the analytics people loved both Filpola and Nielsen for a good chunk of time. Franz Nielsen was that prototypical kind of shut-down, possession-driving defensive center, very similar to a Michael Backlund. Uh, Nielsen was kind of that guy before Backlund took over being one of the best in that regard. Uh, Logo, you had Dennis Weidman as an eighth-round pick. James Wisniewski was a fifth-round pick. Cup winner Max Talbot was an eighth-round pick. There is definitely some value in in that year's draft. Yeah, I think uh, for sure Weidman's probably the the biggest steal late. I know he didn't have the greatest end to his career here in Calgary, but he did have one pretty elite year here. Uh, Serviceable NHLers throughout the draft, I think, even as you headed into uh, round nine, I believe I found a couple NHLers. Adam Burrish, nothing to write home about, but certainly played some time in the NHL. Jonathan Erickson was uh, Mr. Irrelevant, if you will, at 291st, the last pick in the draft, and he had Incredible. a pretty decent career as a uh, a member of the uh, Detroit Red Wings decor for a while. So you, there seems to be you know good value. Like you said, no real run on Hall of Famers by any mean, but you know a draft that you're going to find some value in pretty much 
every round for the most part. Yeah, last pick of the draft to be playing this year. Like Jonathan Erickson split time between the Wings and Grand Rapids this year. That's uh, that's incredible for the last pick of a very long draft. 291 selections. He's flirting with 700 games. That's that's incredible. And, of course, it's the Wings that find a way to do it, isn't it? Yeah, they, they seem to do well on some of those late picks. We've talked already about late round picks is Ederberg and Datsuk in these and uh, third round Philpola eighth round uh, for for Erickson what about uh, I mean uh, this is a, a decent draft from a first round standpoint for the Flames they drafted in the middle and got a guy in Eric Nystrom who was never a superstar uh, but he was a good player and and was a full-time NHLer with the Flames and on other NHL teams I once saw him score four goals at the Saddledome as a member of the Nashville Predators and the Preds still lost that game somehow um, but this is not to pick on the Edmonton Oilers because this vintage of drafting for the Flames wasn't very good either. Um, but there's another first-round pick of the Oilers, 15th overall, that didn't play a game in the NHL. Uh, Yessi Ninamaki was their first-round pick that year. Didn't play an NHL game, so a game. I'm not sure if they were trying to um, get the second coming of Yanni Ninama because their names were so similar, and Ninama was a good Edmonton Oiler. But... Ninimaki was like didn't play a game, and I remember how highly touted he was when they picked him 15th overall. Didn't play a game. The Oilers had a t- logo. We, we've gone through these. We've been talking about it. The Oilers had this string in the late 90s and early 2000s where their first-round pick, it, it would be a good thing if they played 50 in the league. This guy didn't play one. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird because we're so used to here kind of ragging on them and, you know, giving them the – the runaround for not being able to get, you know, first overall picks correct or high draft picks correct, but, you know, and then wondering why they didn't have success. But, I mean, really, uh, this the whole drafting that we've gone through here, it's not hard to see why this team didn't have success and found it hard to bring in quality NHLers because they struck out almost every time they had a first-round pick. I mean, look, when you're looking at Jarrett Stoll as being one of your best draft picks over a what I guess six seven year period that we've gone through already you've done something wrong there's someone not doing a good enough job scouting players for you because you haven't hit on anybody and when you look back at it it kind of makes a lot of sense when you sit there and go I can see why you guys were super unsuccessful during that period the uh to the flames patty boy they had a ton of picks uh one in each of the four first four rounds but another eight in rounds five, six, seven, and eight. They loaded up on late-round flyers. McElhaney was uh, the best of the bunch, and uh, a guy that got 12 seasons. McBackup, he's still playing. Well, and, and, and I think, now this is still a nine-round draft in 2002. Um, when they moved to seven rounds, I, in, I believe 05 is the first year they did seven rounds. When they moved to seven rounds, I think that your, your overall – evaluation of a draft change because now i think if you can get two full-time nhlers from a seven round draft then it's a it's a decent draft if you can get three it's a really good draft maybe a little bit different when they were doing nine picks and you have that many picks but 
Still, to get three players who played more than 200 NHL games is pretty solid. Nystrom, as we mentioned in the first round. Matthew Lombardi, who, again, was never a superstar in the league, but was a full-time NHLer, had the concussion issues that uh, certainly made the 536 games played that he played less than what they could have been. But Lombardi was a full-time NHLer. Nystrom was a full-time NHLer. And Curtis McElhinney was a regular NHL backup to get three full-time NHLers out of one draft in in that time period was pretty decent and from a flame standpoint judging on some of their other drafts was was pretty impressive uh, knowing how some of the ones that we've talked about prior have gone one thing that wasn't impressive they uh they went back to the Russia well we did the 2001 draft on Monday where they selected four Russians who combined to play zero, zero. games they added two more Russians in this draft Yuri Artemenkov in uh, fourth round, 112 overall, and Viktor Bobrov, 146 overall in the fifth round. They also combined for zero games played, so that's now six Russians. In two years, they've drafted to combine for zero games. Uh, It would be no surprise they wouldn't go back to Russia for a draft pick until Rushan Rafakov 11 years later. And he was a late round pick too. I believe seventh rounder. Pick. Yeah, zero games played. Uh, it's yeah. They, they did. They they thought they had something. We'll take six of these Russians in two years. None of them played a game. Um, what other bust jump off the page? Uh, Florida went with their ninth overall pick. Didn't get a game out of a, a logo. We all remember Peter Tatacek. Oh yeah, Pete. Oh, we yeah. called him PT. Uh, I do remember Jakub. Klepish, uh, he was a 16th overall pick uh, to Ottawa. If your first name was Jakob, you didn't do very well in this draft first round. Uh, Jakob Klepish didn't play much, 16th overall to Ottawa. Uh, Jakob Koris, 19th overall to Phoenix. Um, what else, gents, jumps off when it comes to busts or, or things that didn't necessarily go the way they should have? It's a pretty good first round, Pat. Like We normally, we've gone, what, 96 all the way now to 02? We probably haven't seen a first round with as few busts as this one because there's a lot of guys that got yep. a bunch of seasons and more than half of that first round got 10 plus seasons in the NHL. This might be the most consistent first round we've seen. Yeah. And honestly, if you take old uh, PD out of the uh, first 14 picks there, everybody had a fairly significant NHL career. Nine Not, you know, seasons, minimum. Yeah, you know, yeah, like that's, yeah. that's, that's hard to argue with. And most of the time we've seen, if not, you know, number one or number twos go on to have bad careers throughout these drafts. But you've seen scattered throughout the top ten numerous guys with, you know, single-digit NHL games beside their names. And that's certainly not the case in this first round for sure. Yep. Any other names that uh, that draw strong emotions from you? I know Chris Higgins spent uh, a short amount of time in Calgary and was involved in a big deal that uh, uh, was made here. How about Anton Babchuk? Another former flame taken in the first round. Woo! Wheels. He could certainly shoot the puck. That's about he, all he could do. Boots. He, he, was, he was tall. I really like. I think maybe one of the it's, – it's not a sleeper because he was a first-round pick, and he never was a superstar, but one of the most consistent, smart, and helpful NHLers that came out of this draft. We haven't probably talked about he was a Toronto guy, but he spent 
most of his career and, and had the most success as a member of the St. Louis Blues at uh, 24 overall, Alex Steen out of uh, Frölunda yeah. in Sweden. He's had a really good career and uh, you know won a Stanley Cup in the latter stages where he had been a little further down the depth chart but you know when the blues were winning divisions five six years ago and when they were fighting for the president's trophy this guy was again one of those really important shutdown two-way players and and he's uh he's really uh put together an impressive career for himself more than a thousand nhl games so i think alex steen deserves some love out of this uh out of this group i I believe didn't didn't the oilers give Boyd Gordon, a really high-end contract out of nowhere in free agency a number of years back. He went 17th overall to Washington out of the Red Deer Rebels. Um, Rebels had a good first round. Boyd Gordon went 17th. Uh, Cam Ward went 25th. That was during the real heydays, as uh, Boomer will remember, of the Red Deer Rebels. That was when they were a a Canadian, not just a Western League, but a Canadian powerhouse. Uh, Those are some of the other names that jump off the page to me. Matt Station. Patty as well. Yep. State's been uh, one of seven players to eclipse a thousand games played in this draft class, which is, uh, you know, I, I, better than average for the, what, seven drafts, eight drafts we've looked at now. So that's, uh, he went, what, 54 to Toronto? Is that right? 57. 57 to Toronto. Yep. And uh, there you go. Also, World Juniors, good, good long NHL career. Uh, only played with two teams in his NHL career. We all know how you know Stajan's on my Mount Rushmore of of Flames uh, that I've enjoyed dealing with. Um, so I'm a little biased on it, but yeah, I think Stajan had a hell of a career. Can't really turn your nose up at a thousand games, can you? That's, to get that's to get a thousand games, Logan, out of a out of a second round pick. You'll take that every day of the week. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think for a majority of that, Matt was a, a pretty solid everyday NHLer that you know you'd want on your team for sure. I think a thousand games was a a very respectable mark for him to get to. Curious too, I noticed this not a surprise as we've gone through these drafts, but Detroit with another good draft in this one: Hoodler, Fleischman, Filpula to go along with Jonathan oh. Erickson. In the last yeah. pick there, all Jeez. of them above 650 NHL games. I didn't realize Philpula over 1,000 games now. Yep. Uh, he's at uh, 1,018. That's a pretty long career for him. Yeah, no question. And the wide dog, pretty uh, pretty good for a guy taking uh, 241. Dennis Weidman, 800-plus games, flirted with uh, 400 points in the league as a defenseman. That year, the Flames went to the postseason uh, against Vancouver in the first round there was really, for me, like the peak Dennis Wyman, the puck mover, power play quarterback, like and a show well, remember that he was they an lost Geo in February. Yeah, him and Russell right. were the two that had. And I know that Wide Wide Dog and Russell got plenty of uh, plenty of headlines, and there was plenty of debate about both of those guys. But had had Weidman not stepped up after Geo goes down, Flames don't win around. They probably don't even get to the playoffs. Him and Chris Russell had to take on way more heavy lifting uh, during that uh, 2015 run. Real cerebral player, good thinker of the game. You, uh, you're being sarcastic. I'm not. Um, I'm actually. I mean that 100. percent I mean, his uh, like his last season or two were hard to watch, but he was a guy that always thought it well, and that's what made him successful. And that's probably why. Well, I thought you were when, taking a shot at him because that's no, kind of not at all. all. No, no. I mean, I like. <laughs> giving a guy a good ribbing, but I mean, that's the only reason he's successful. I don't know that he has exemplary talent um, 
you know, he's not a great skater. He could shoot it real well, but he's a guy that thought the game well, moving the puck around and, you know, taking advantage of what was in front of him. And one of the uh, best senses of humor I can, uh, he was dry wit. Sometimes kind of came off like if, if you if you don't sure. enjoy a dry wit and getting ribbed as such, it can sometimes be tough to take. I always loved dealing with Dennis Wyden. I thought he was a, uh, a pretty, uh, he'd tell you what he think, uh, what, what he thought, and he would uh, sometimes be very blunt about it, but I'm for that uh, all day, every day. Okay, that'll do it for our 2002 NHL redraft. Now, I don't know if we're doing 2003 tomorrow or Thursday, but one of the next two days we will do 2003, which when we get into it, gents, I think we'll come away from it saying it's the greatest draft in NHL history uh, or one of the two or three greatest drafts in NHL history. Certainly in our lifetimes, the greatest draft class that uh, we've ever seen. That's either tomorrow or Thursday. Don't forget, 7 o'clock salute. On your balcony, on your patio, on your front lawn, and whatever the case may be, get out there and salute to the... Frontline workers who are keeping our city going, whether it be in hospitals or clinics or grocery stores or fast food places, uh, kitchens, whatever the case may be. People are keeping our economy going, and these people are keeping us safe, keeping us alive in ICU, so on and so forth. They deserve the round of applause they're getting every single night, and we want to highlight one every week. Uh, Wild Rose Brewery and Sportsnet 960 have teamed up to salute one essential worker every week we want you to nominate said worker at 960-960 by telling us who that worker is with the word salute in your text and each week one lucky person is going to be selected to win an amazing prize pack from wild rose brewery it's our 7 p.m salute to the essential workers in this city it's brought to you by wild rose brewery who wishes you and yours health and safety during these challenging times we support you the hard-working characters of calgary and the rest of alberta if you missed it earlier today elias lindholm of the Calgary Flames with the boys in the morning. We'll uh, hear that conversation next on Pinder and Steinberg. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Calgary guys talking Calgary sports. Pinder and Steinberg are only on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Earlier today, Calgary Flames forward Elias Lindholm joined the gents on the morning show from his spot in Sweden. He is uh, back in Sweden. That's why the morning show made so much sense. Eight-hour time difference uh, in conversation with Boomer, Kron, and Will. Here's uh, Flames forward Elias Lindholm from earlier today. Elias, how are you, man? What's up? Uh, not much. Just, uh, just uh, sitting on the couch and watching on TV. So uh, kind of basic day for, for me these days, so. Yeah, what is a basic day? So walk me through the uh, the Lindholm. We wake up. What uh, what happens in the uh, in the day of Elias Lindholm? Uh just a quick breakfast. And right now I've got uh, a big yard back uh, back at, at my place here in Sweden. So it's a lot of things to take care of. So right now we we've been uh, doing uh, you know, things out there for for a couple hours every day. So it's. Uh, you know, when you have a house, it's it's always always uh, things to do. So, uh, which is uh, kind of positive thing uh, during these times. But uh, usually, it sucks. But uh, it's. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was gonna say, I thought I saw a picture of you like carrying firewood or something. Like, are you an outdoors? Is this you're an outdoorsy guy or what? Uh, yeah, kind of try to you know be outside as much as possible and. Uh, when I got home uh, uh, or around a month ago, 
have some trees uh, falling down uh, uh, midwinter here. So uh, care of that and and a uh, couple a couple other uh, other things as well. So uh, which is uh, which is okay uh, during these times. I'm sure Brad Treliving would love knowing that uh, Elias Lindholm flies home, starts get, gets a chainsaw out, starts knocking trees down. I'm sure that's uh, <laughs> he'd love to hear that. <laughs> right, exactly. Are you good with a chainsaw? No, hey, are you good with a no, chainsaw? I, no, my dad is uh, uh, came over and and uh, did it for me. So I <laughs> I uh, do the heavy work and uh, you know uh, carry them around. So uh, which is. Uh, <laughs> yeah so you're living it's uh, kind of a small town right you're not it's not like you're in stockholm or anything you're a small town is it true the sun doesn't go down you're in kind of a land of the midnight sun over there uh that's uh more up north way up north uh, yeah. the sun doesn't go down so uh but here i'm i'm just uh in the middle of sweden just uh over an hour out uh, north of stockholm so yeah because I was, I, I was looking at uh, uh, either if you live here, you work with the Swe- Swedish Army or the railway, and uh, quite often the sun never goes down. And I got thinking, yeah, I don't need to be in the army or the railway, and I need some sleep, so I'm going to be a hockey player and get get out of uh, Bowdoin, Sweden. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I've been uh, since my dad played. I've been kind of all over, all over the place. But uh, since. Yeah. Uh, since uh, 2000, we we lived in in uh, this town though, so there you um, go. which is kind of middle in Sweden. So are you going? Is are you able to keep? Are you are you getting tired of it? Are you going crazy with it? I know everybody's excited to hopefully get hockey back, but just on a personal level, uh, like I said, from day to day, you're just like doing yard work, and every day kind of feels like it's like Groundhog Day. Uh, how's your mental state? How sick of it are you? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, some days are are tougher, but uh, I think uh, yeah. Obviously, <laughs> uh, my girlfriend and I have uh, we have uh, had uh, you know our ups ups and downs, but uh, uh, keep it together and still together. So I think that's a positive thing. And and uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, it's tough, obviously. And and uh, you do pretty much the same thing every day, and you wake up and and. Uh, do the same thing you eat and and try to get a workout in and then uh, then pretty much you go to to sleep again so uh, it's uh, not too too uh, nothing too crazy going on but uh, you know hopefully we can start up the season soon and and, uh, you know get back to to having some fun again so no so no fighting everything's good with the girlfriend because i'll be honest that's no fighting, that's good no for you fighting. then man just, uh, oh good for you yeah it's just a, there's a couple of argues but it is what it is yeah. i think everyone has you win those i'm sure both are. Yeah. yeah we're not meant to spend this much time together it's too much time together it's too much <laughs> he's elias <laughs> yeah, lindholm yeah. back home in sweden joining us here on uh, sportsnet will Elias, I understand, though, over in Sweden, it hasn't really been in terms of uh, day-to-day operation. The government has not closed things down. It is kind of wide open. I know Backlund was talking to some reporters over here, and and that's what he had mentioned. You know, still can go to the gym, still can do some things. Are you finding that interesting in in terms of have you been able – have you been going out? Have you been going to the gym? Do you have a gym at your house? And if things are open, are, are you skating right now at all? No, I haven't. Uh, I wasn't always uh, 
last Sunday, but that uh, in my hometown, uh, the ice, all the all the rings closed, uh, closed uh, after that. So, but yeah, it's, Sweden has done a different way, which is uh, a very long way here, and, and uh, uh, a lot of people has has uh, died because of that. But uh, uh, I've been lucky enough to to have a gym at my place. I try to stay at home as as much as possible, but uh, sometimes you have have to get grocery and stuff like that so but uh yeah i'm, I'm lucky enough to have a, have a gym at my place and and uh do, do a couple of workouts and and uh you know try to stay home, home as much as possible did you uh did you go back to sweden kind of right when you got the uh the green light from the nhl to do so or or did you stay in calgary a little while longer hoping to to get back uh i stayed for for a couple of days um uh, to see what's going on and then uh um, I looked at a couple couple flights back home to Sweden, which was uh, you know they uh, they got fewer and fewer for for every day. You, you kind of uh, looked at it, but uh, yeah. So I'm I've been home for almost a month now, and, and uh, so it's always, uh, always good to be home and, and spend uh, spend uh, not not really time with uh, with family, but uh, you know uh, see them uh, more often. I guess just uh, focusing in on the season when you guys were playing, I know that uh, right when things kind of shut down there, it did feel like the uh, uh, the thought amongst your teammates was you guys were kind of starting to find your game a little bit after a slow start to the year. Did you feel the same way, and, and were you happy with way the way the team was playing? Yeah, obviously uh, a lot of uh, ups and downs, and a lot of things happened for our team during the season, and, and uh, I think... Uh, Towards the end there, before everything shut down, I think uh, we find our game and, and start playing more consistent and and uh, you know uh, start playing uh, better hockey and and uh, which was uh, tough timing for for the Swiss to 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 come in, but you know it, it was the right thing to to shut everything down and and uh, right now and try to enjoy it to be to be back home. But uh, I'm excited and hopefully we can start up the season again soon. Since the, you know, since you were acquired by the Flames almost two years ago, it'll be two years of the draft here coming up in in June. But since the day the Flames acquired you, everyone's talked about you and and your your versatility, your ability to play center. And this year, specifically when Jeff Ward took over, you played more down the middle than you would ever had in a Flames uniform. Uh, just your thought on that? How did you feel that you you liked playing center? Um, and and is that something you'd like to to pursue? You know, next season and moving forward. Yeah, as soon as uh, uh, Warder took over, he, he brought me in and told me he liked me more as a center, and, and uh, uh, I agreed to. And and um, he put me in, and uh, it was fun. And then uh, obviously we, as a team, we we didn't uh, play as well, and and he needed to do a couple changes, and and uh, that uh, that was uh, putting me on, on the wing, which was fine. But yeah, for sure. Uh, moving forward, I'll probably uh, rather play play in the middle. But uh, wherever wherever the coach wants me to play, I'll I'll be ready. You were uh, on pace to continue to, to to shatter your career high in goals, and there was you know even going back to old interviews with old coaches you had in Carolina, specifically Rod Brendamore. He was not surprised at how much you really took off offensively in Calgary. Why has it worked so well? 
since coming to the Flames? Has it been your comfort level? You know, it's now your fifth, sixth season in the NHL. Uh, why did your goal number specifically, and, and just overall your offensive game, why do you think it's flourished so much in, in Calgary? I think the biggest uh, biggest change for me was uh, uh, my role uh, was different in Calgary. And uh, I think uh, in Carolina, I was more, uh, more of a, you know, as soon as my line started playing good and someone else, wasn't playing as good uh, I had to you know kind of go go where the line wasn't playing as good and try to give them a little little uh, kick in the ass kind of and get them going so that was uh, that that all obviously helps me play you know not moving around as much and and uh, playing more consistency where where you you know where you feel feel comfortable which was which happened to me in Calgary and play with with uh, Anna and and Johnny for for pretty much the whole season last year, and then this year was was a little different. We we didn't quite get good uh, this year, and and been moving moving and playing more with with different lines. But uh, obviously, I uh, yeah, created a lot of building a lot of confidence from last year, which uh, which helps as well. I guess you know you look at this this uh, this season and the way it played out. You, you mentioned trying to find your game and, and your team started to play better. Whether it's this summer and you can resume the season, or it's next fall and you're beginning the the next season, um, it, it's likely you're going to play some games without fans. Have you been able to wrap your head around that? What is that? Um, is is that something that you think is going to affect your game a lot? And 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 I guess just what do you think it's going to be like playing in an empty building? Yeah, for sure. That's uh, that's gonna be tough. Obviously, uh, the fans is uh, pretty much the whole game. Without the fans, there wouldn't be any games. So uh, I think uh, every time you go and play in front of a full building, you're you're pumped up and fired up. And and when you're playing for in front of uh, just a couple of thousands, you you, you kind of have to give yourself and mot- motivate yourself for for that. And now without fans, it's I don't know, you know, when you're at practice, you, you have a couple couple media guys there, but uh, uh, it's going to be tough for sure. Uh, we love playing in front of fans, and, and, uh, but, uh, you know, it's just uh, tough to imagine playing without fans, so it's going to be be a tough, uh, tough thing to do for sure. Now, of course, uh, we mentioned Sweden doesn't have a ton of lockdowns, so I, I don't know if this question really is, is a huge thing for you because you've been able to, to go out and maybe do – regular day-to-day things as opposed to some of the rest of us. But, um, you know, you Swedes like your style. Has your hair or your beard gone out of, you know, out of whack here or, or you've been able to keep it in a straight line? No, actually, I haven't uh, tried to do my beard uh, myself or, or my girlfriend helps me, but uh, my hair is uh, – I uh, haven't been to to uh, anyone to help me out there. But uh try to, you know, probably wait until – Everything calms down here, and then, uh, then we'll see. Maybe I have to, to go uh, <laughs> do it myself later on. We'll see. <laughs> Elias Lindholm, Flames Forward, is our guest here on Sportsnet. Uh, Eric Gustafson comes in at the trade deadline, so it's Gustafson, Shillington, Rasmus Anderson, Michael Backlund, and Elias Lindholm. Now, we've been told that the Swedes... They like to kind of stick together, especially when it comes to restaurants. You guys, the Swedes go and they always eat together. Is that true? And if so, what is, are they? Is their taste in food 
special? Uh, what what is it that makes you guys a good group for uh, for dining? Yeah, we usually go together. Uh, I think uh, uh, you know it's it's always comfortable to to go with with the sweets and and uh, you know to speak uh, speak a different language or something yeah. like that. So uh, we usually go together and and uh, backland is uh, is real good at uh, knowing his spots and and uh, usually do the reservations and stuff like that. So um, uh, we all probably like Italian the most but uh during the season we we don't put uh on too 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 many pounds so uh yeah. we'll mix it up uh quite a bit so well here's the thing a- Anderson's going to get paid next year so he can start throwing the credit card out a little more often right exactly uh but usually we we're, we're pretty good with that we uh we've been uh, kind of lucky and and uh everyone is uh you know, chipping in uh, once yeah. in a while, so it's uh, it's a it's a good group. <laughs> nobody's nobody's special of going to the bathroom when when the bill comes. Nobody does that move. No, 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 not yet. I haven't <laughs> seen it yet, so it's all good. <laughs> you guys are too nice. You guys are too friendly. You Swedes, <laughs> too nice. Exactly. Uh, do do you nice. stay in touch? Yeah. Do you guys That's stay right. in touch? I know some guys are. They're they're online playing video games with each other, Fortnite or or NHL or whatever. How how are you keeping in touch with the guys? Um, I haven't keep in touch uh, too much to be honest with you. I've talked to Chillington a couple of times and and uh, uh, back on the phone a little bit. That's that's uh, that's kind of it. And, and uh, so uh, been kind of busy back home and stuff with the with the time change too. Now to to keep uh, keep track of everyone. Elias Lindholm joined the boys. Boomer Will Cron on Boomer in the Morning today. Uh, he, uh, we're trying to get as many flames as we can on. Space him out a little bit. Uh, speaking of which, Derek Ryan of the Calgary Flames will be joining uh, Pinder and Steinberg at 2.30 on Thursday afternoon. Elias Lindholm with the boys this morning on Boomer in the Morning. That's up at sportsnet.ca. I'm excited. Right now. You're excited? Because for years at the Flames Roundtable, you've been saying it's Derek Ryan and Pat. Tomorrow, it'll be Derek Ryan, Ryan, and Pat. That's right. Derek Ryan. So it'll still be Derek Ryan and Pat. It'll be Derek Ryan and Pat, which yep. uh, I just, very moving moment coming on Thursday. Stay tuned for that. I, I actually hadn't even thought about that. Now I'm nervous. I don't know how I'm going to get through that interview on Thursday. Uh, <laughs> Derek Ryan will join us Thursday. What's his middle name? We'll have to clear this up. Uh, if his middle name is Patrick, we're in a lot of trouble. Derek Pat Ryan is on the program. That would be a, a lot of trouble. Uh, trip down memory lane around the corner as we take a look back on this date in Flames history. It's Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Two guys in different spots staying at home, but still talking on the radio. It's a miracle. Pinder and Steinberg is only on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Mr. Pinder, did you know that the Flames have uh, never won a game on April 28th in their history in the league? So you have to fix that, Mike. It's being a little silly again. Um, I no, Pat, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, Ryan, you sound like Logan. What's going on? Uh, they have never won a game on this date. Um, there were There have been some significant games. Uh, for instance... 
that stupid 1994 series. Now, granted, luckily, the Canucks did not win the Stanley Cup in 1994. Thank goodness for the New York Rangers. But uh, they wouldn't have even been in the Stanley Cup final had the Flames been able to close out a 3-2 series lead on this date in 1994, Game 6 as uh, uh, the Flames had a 3-1 series lead on the Canucks. Vancouver stayed alive, winning Game 5 in overtime. Uh, and then Trevor Linden won Game 6 in overtime to tie the series at 3. And then Pavel Bure won it in Game 7 in overtime a couple days later. But on this date in uh, 1994, Mr. Pinder, Trevor Linden, overtime winner to keep the Canucks alive once again. Tiger. Oh, Trev was such a good junior. I remember scouting him. I think I was actually playing in the league at the time. I don't know why I was scouting and stuff, but really <laughs> like Trev. We haven't heard this enough. No, there's not been enough Jim Benning in the pandemic. Oh, it's like the, the Flames like had Jim's a 3-1 series lead in 1994 and couldn't close out the Canucks. Bothers oh, me man. to this day. Canucks win game five in overtime, game six in overtime, and game seven in double overtime thanks oh. to Burray down the wing. Uh, just like, could they not have won one? They had a 3 1 series lead. Canucks, of course, would that lose was such seven in the Stanley Cup finals, so that's okay. Such a miserable run of playoffs for this franchise. They you were climbing so the mountain good there. in 89, and then you have really good teams still. But one way or another, find a way to have your hearts ripped out. Um, the one for me, what I think, what was it? Pat Falloon, a double OT winner in game seven against the Sharks club. Like, oh my gosh. I remember being at summer camp and hearing the news. And I was like, how in the world could that have happened? But yeah, yeah. that was on this so date. A long, miserable run. It really was. Uh, also in this date. Uh, Flames had a 2-0 series lead uh, in their 1986 series. They would win against the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, They lost this game 5-2, though, so the Oilers avoided falling down three games to none. Uh, Three former Flames born on this day, uh, Ken Sabrin, uh, Danny Taylor, and Mel Bridgman, all celebrating different birthdays today as well. This date in Flames history, April 28th through the ages. He's Pinder. I'm Steinberg. Up next, I've got a number of different questions that I in the NHL is going to need to internally answer if they're going to be able to return this season. That doesn't mean that they're not going to return. Just some big questions and some big hurdles they're going to have to clear. We'll break it all down for you next on Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg continues on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. I've been thinking about this, right? You know, there's been a lot of buzz over the last 24 hours, 48 hours, pretty much since the weekend, that, you know, what what is it going to look like if when the NHL returns and is there actually a possibility that the NHL could be back? Could we see the league play games in the summer? And I know that there are a lot of pitfalls. I know that there are a lot of uh, different hurdles that the league is going to have to clear to do this. But I, I thought, well, let's let's have that conversation. We didn't have a lot of time to talk about it yesterday. Emilio Peterson joined us almost right off the hop as he signed his entry-level deal with the Calgary Flames. But let's let's get into it. What are the realistic ways and the realistic pitfalls, the actual things the NHL is going to have to clear from a hurdle perspective if they're going to want to make this happen? There's, I, I think, I think there's a lot of them. 
Yeah, so the first one that has to happen is you have to collect players. So, well, and then even before that, you have to be granted the ability to do this from, you know, regional governments, medical professionals to say, we're allowing this to happen. Then you got to collect the players. Then you've got to quarantine them, I imagine, coming from all over the world, countries with very, very different policies and situations with COVID-19. Uh, probably two weeks, then run training camp and... Uh, you know, there's a lot there. Our borders open. How are you collecting players? You know, you, you, before anything is going to happen, you have to have an agreement in place with the PA about how this is going to work. There's been concerns illustrated in the last uh, 24, 48 hours from, uh, I think, Jonathan Taves speaking about other PA members and players that if we have to be away from our families three to four months, that's not really ideal. And that's kind of what going into a bubble is asking players to do, at least in the way that we've understood some of the proposals uh, of late. So there's a lot of hurdles uh, and it doesn't mean any of them are, are not going to be able to be overcome, but there's just a lot of little things that can go wrong. And that's even before we talk about an outbreak or a city that they're in running into issues, whatever, even minor stuff like, Hey, when we picked rally and it's 38 degrees in Carolina in North Carolina today, the ice is crap. And we got three games on the set on yeah. the deck. I mean, there's, there, 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 there are more pitfalls than there are potential pitfalls than there are anything else in there. There's so much unknown and so many things that could go sideways because you're trying to operate with some sense of normalcy in a time that isn't normal at all. Few things. First of all, welcome to Pinder and Steinberg, and I want to kind of go through all those different pitfalls and go through all those different things that the NHL is going to have to figure out. Here is Elliot Friedman, who joined us yesterday uh, and talked about kind of similar to you the keys to resuming the season. What would have to happen if they were able to get hockey back underway? You need to have medical professionals say you can do it. You need to have uh, local governments willing to say that, you know, we'll let you do it. Those are probably one and one A. Uh, and then one B is probably, you know, you have to be able to be able to test people. You know, as we know, one of the big issues has been testing. And I know that, you know, a lot of people in Alberta are think that you guys have done a really good job of testing compared to other people. But, you know, one, I've had a couple of players say to me, they're not convinced it's a good idea for them to be getting a whole bunch of tests when, you know, other people can't get them. So I, mm -hmm. I think that is a big issue too. So I would say those are the three things right at the top of the list. Will the medical professionals let you do it? Will the governments let you do it? Is there enough testing going around that you can test everybody every day? Because you're going to have to do that. That is Elliot Friedman from yesterday, basically outlining the same things you just talked about, Rye, about testing, about uh, needing to quarantine the players, about having to get the government signed off on all that type of stuff. Here are some of the hurdles. And, and I think that, number one, you got to find a location that works. you got to find a spot that um, you can – you got to find four spots at least that you can feasibly be able to – quarantine players close to the arena and find a way to make it so that there's almost no risk of them coming in contact with everybody else that includes the media that includes arena workers that includes hotel staff all that type of stuff so you have to find a spot where you can 
quarantine these guys, isolate these guys as best as humanly possible. And and that's why I think the idea of Edmonton makes so much sense. And yes, you'd have to get exemptions from the Alberta government, the Canadian government, all that type of stuff. But I do think that Edmonton makes sense, that J.W. Marriott, has a ton of floors, a ton of capacity, and you don't have to leave the hotel to go to the rink or the practice rink. You can have one team per floor, and you can keep these guys as controlled as you're going to be able to get anywhere. And there are other setups like that, similar to that, in the league right now. Los Angeles has got a similar setup. Minnesota's got a similar setup. You could find spots like that. So that you got to find four cities where you've got the ability to truly quarantine and keep these guys controlled. And and so I think that is number one. I don't think that part is really unrealistic. I do think you can find spots where you can institute these controls and keep them somewhat or, or as close to totally isolated as you could possibly get. That would be step one for me is finding at least four spots to be able to do it. Don't think it's a problem at all. I think we've seen what, like the 12 to 16 number been floated around by the league in terms of markets they're exploring. That's not really much of an issue. And the other thing is, is I mean, you're still guessing at this point. Edmonton's in great shape now. Where's it going to be in July? We don't have a clue. And because some place is good now, doesn't mean it's going to be good later. And you could make the case, I don't know if it's scientifically 100% accurate or not, but if a certain area hasn't had the virus is it not more susceptible to infection three months from now than places that have already theoretically hit a peak and come back down? I don't know. And uh, so Edmonton looks great today. Uh, Vegas, for a lot of logistical reasons, would make a ton of sense. You could literally give a hotel to a team in its entirety. You're talking about a place built on hotel capacity that's got to be close to like 1% at this point or something like that. Yeah. But there's no shortage of markets that would be okay at this point i don't think the that's the biggest challenge for this group uh for the for the whole proposal i mean even the players like just let's say you're an la king like you're on zay kopitar you're gonna leave your family for two months to finish up a meaningless season well and that i think is is one of the next steps is i i know that the nhl keeps talking well the nhl has said very little but i know that the nhl has talked about and insiders specifically continue talking about how they want to they want to finish the regular season and i i just don't see how that a makes any sense and b is realistic because the 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 idea of taking teams like as you mentioned Anze Kopitar and the LA Kings uh Philippe Deneau we'll we'll play a clip from him a little bit later on here in this segment Philippe Deneau talked about it today uh the Anaheim Ducks the, the all these teams that are not in the playoffs and and have no shot at being in it's different if you're minnesota it's different if you're even chicago and you still had somewhat of light there that maybe the playoffs could be a possibility down the stretch but if you're the ottawa senators or the la kings or or the detroit red wings what motivation do you have to go play out a bunch of meaningless games where in detroit's case they're already mathematically eliminated i think the the regular season is unrealistic from that standpoint and i also think resuming the uh, the regular season is unrealistic from a standpoint of you're, you're going to want to play all these games in this one hub. And, for instance, the Calgary Flames still had games against the, the New York Islanders, New York Rangers, New Jersey Devils. Those games aren't going to happen. So what? Why, why mess with a regular season schedule midway through when you can just start the playoffs? I, I feel well, like starting the playoffs is, is the 
only way they can do this, whether it's 16 teams, 20 teams, 24 teams, and they, they figure it out that way. That seems like the only realistic way to do this thing. The regular season seems bizarre to me. The regular season is about chasing revenue. Because the LA Kings will have a deal with, let's say, Fox Sports LA or Southern California, whatever, the, you know, for an example. And Chris Johnson talked about this, I think, last week, that are the Kings now going to cut a check for the 20% of the season that's missing or whatever the case may be? Or can they fulfill that obligation, keep the money that's been paid, or continue to collect the money that was going to be paid over the course of a regular season? It's about money because there's no good reason to bring these bad teams that are way out of it back. There really isn't a good one from a competitive balance. It doesn't help to give away the Stanley Cup. It doesn't really do anything except allow you to collect more money rank boards whatever it's true i don't, I don't... It's, that's probably the main reason why they want to do the regular season and i just think from a logistical standpoint they'll probably realize at some point that that's that's not going to be something they can actually feasibly do so okay let's let's say that you know just for the sake of this conversation they decide to not do the regular season and they just start the playoffs okay well the next thing is they have to figure out four locations where they have access to tests and they also have access to tests that aren't going to take away from the people that need them the most. And that's not a, we're not being callous when we say that a bunch of NHLers and an NHL team personnel are not the people that need the test the most. The people that are on the front lines, the people that are in high risk areas, the people that might actually have this thing. Those are the people that are going to need to have uh, the most access to tests. So here's, like, for instance, why I think it would work in Alberta, and this is one spot, is because in, in the next little while, we're only a week's away from the Alberta government believing they're going to have the capacity for 20,000 tests a day. And right now, we're testing, what, 3,000, 4,000 people a day. So I don't think it's crazy to suggest that come July or, or come June, when they want to start this thing, that there will be plenty of options for NHLers to get tested in Alberta. And if it's 500 tests a day that they need to get these guys tested and to rapidly see whether or not they have it or not to be able to go forward with the game, okay, if they if the NHL is, is cool for paying for these tests and Alberta has got more than enough ca- capacity to do it, then I think that that is something feasible. And if you can get three other spots where there's capacity to be able to get 500 tests a day, I'm just ballparking a number of what, like, five to six to eight NHL teams in one spot would be for personnel. Okay, well, there's another hurdle that you've cleared. But, again, you got to find four spots that are able to do it. Yeah, I think Alberta is going to have capacity to do it, and maybe Ontario or maybe some of these other places. But you have to make sure, and the only way a government is going to sign off on this, you have to make Make sure that you're not going to be taking tests away from people who need it a whole lot more, right? Yeah, well, it's just political nightmare. Imagine being a leader of a state or a province and saying, sorry, we don't have a test for your sick parent who's, you know, the demographic we have to worry about the most because we are giving 500 a day to professional athletes that are making millions of dollars. It's, I mean, you could do it. You know, the state of Florida has deemed wrestlers, you know, essential employee or uh, workers like crazy things happen but i just see that as i I, you can't do it and expect not to be crushed in most places on earth um and as you said like i I just looked at it the last 10 days this province has averaged around four thousand tests a day 
They have talked about ramping up capacity. That's great. The, the, the struggle would be for Alberta, when are they going to allow gatherings of X number of people and how many people do you need to gather to get not only a hockey game done with the 23 hockey players, the coaching staff, the trainers, the equipment guys, but also a television crew. Uh, you've got a TV truck, right? Can you do that separately, remotely? I don't know. What about camera people? What about, you know, the officials for off-ice stuff if you're going to be collecting stats? What about the referees? I mean, all of a sudden, we're nowhere near the 10 to 15 to 20 number. You know, you're talking you're about... You're probably closer to 100, right? Over 100, probably, to, to run a game as we, you know, as bare bones as you can go in an NHL game as we know it. That's, uh, so is your government ready to do that? And I guess we have to view, you know, if you are a business owner and your practices are deemed to be a lot safer than gathering 100 people in a rink, can politically you say sports are okay to come back, but your business, your livelihood, you who pay taxes here, you can't open? That's a bit of the delicate dance as well. And, yeah. and that's more art than There's... science in terms of how that's presented and how people feel about it. Because some of us would say, I'm fine with it. I just need to be entertained. I want normal. And others would say, this is BS. Why are billionaires from elsewhere being favored over local people that really need the focus to be on us getting our economy back, not, you know, making the NHL league headquarters happy. There, and, and that's another one of the hurdles is that there are probably going to be, even in Alberta, again, we're talking about it because Edmonton's been one of the places that has been rumored to, to be able to host these things. Well, if that's the case, then they're going to need an exemption. They're going to need an exemption to hold a gathering of more than 15 people, which isn't allowed in Calgary, for instance, until the end of August, and we don't know what that's going to look like in Edmonton. They're going to need an exemption. They're going to need the government to say, okay, because you are are showing us that you can control this thing and there is very little risk of an outbreak and very little risk of it impacting the general public of our city and of our province, will allow you to do this. They're going to need that type of exemption. And teams are also going to need an exemption to have players cross borders. Like, they're going to need the federal government of Canada at this point to say that, yes, players who are in, like, for instance, just I, I believe Derek Ryan is going to join us on this program on Thursday. I believe Derek Ryan is currently self-isolating and quarantining, uh, quarantining in his hometown of Spokane, Washington. So he would need exemption from the Canadian government to cross the border, to return to wherever the flames would be congregating to resume the season. And a player who is congregating in Canada or quarantining in Canada would have to have the same type of exemption to cross the board like there's a lot of things that the nhl is going to need to clear from a logistical standpoint and that's just yeah. another one uh and on, on top of the fact that yeah i mean most places are are capping gatherings at a certain number and that number is usually less than what it would be to run an nhl hockey game so there's going to yeah. be a, a lot of they're, they're going to need a lot of government clearance to be able to make this work as well well, and, and just to get back to the point I'd made, but to maybe portray it a little more closer to home, let's say you've got Steinberg Industries and you make knickknacks uh, in a factory. You can distance people, mask them up, and show that you can be safe. Why would the regional government allow sports to come back in much denser, riskier workplaces than what you can do? How would you feel about it? I know as sports broadcasters, we feel great about having content. 
I know for people that are missing watching sports on their couch at home, you can justify that. But it's not necessarily just as simple as that because if the league can say, here are all the things we're doing, look, we're good, approve us, does that open the door for every other business in the province to say, look, here's what we're doing to protect ourselves, let us rock? It's not really fair if they only do it for one thing and not the other, right? And the final, and, and I just wanted to, like, I I believe, like, I, I, I was talking to uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Kristen Anderson of uh, Post Media. I was texting with her yesterday. Uh, I've talked about this with a couple of other people. I believe this is doable. I believe the NHL can make this work. I have quite the I, I'm I'm fairly optimistic about this. I understand there are hurdles, but my, my personal belief is yes, I think the NHL can return and I think there's a better chance than not that we do see games starting in late June or July. I do believe they can do this and, and because of that I'm I'm wanting to underline what is going to need to happen for I, I don't think it's a guarantee. And I don't think it's set in stone, but I, I believe that there is a decent chance this can happen, and I'm optimistic about it happening. But there are certainly pitfalls and reasons why this is going to be difficult. And the final one is, here's a, here's a clip from uh, Philippe Deneau of the Montreal Canadiens on a conference call today, uh, and, and he talked about some of the different issues from a player's standpoint. It's hard to say because, you know, all those teams that were in playoff, they, they would all probably say that they want to finish the season and, uh, uh, in some, somehow, some ways, I don't know. But, um, for us right now, I think for the, the health and for everyone, I think, um, the, the, not the best scenario, but, um, the best way to finish this would be to concentrate on next year and because we keep pushing everything and I think it would uh, deflect too much on the next year as well if we would start it say in uh, November or anything like that so uh, it's gonna, it's a difficult uh, decision for the league and uh, and the players you know some some players could be away from their family three to four months which I think it's way too much and I'm not the only one thinking like that I'm sure so it's going to be a big decision for the, the rest of the season Final, the final thing that he brought up there is the one, the last issue that we haven't talked about, and that is taking team personnel, players, coaches, PR guys, trainers, uh, equipment guys, all of the, all of the people um, that are involved with the team that would have to be in this city and in this quarantine to make it happen. Yeah. You're probably talking about with a training camp, at least a month away from families and for a team that goes deep and all the way, you're probably talking about two months or so, if not a little bit longer of being away from your family. And, and I, I don't like, I think that is a valid concern. I think that is a a fair thing to bring up, but I also would say, and this is not to be callous and of the two of us, who's got a, who's got a family, who's got kids, not me, that's you. So you'd have a, a, a different perspective on this, but my kind of cut and dried response to that would be, that's right. And I, I, I don't think it would be easy for the families to lose uh, a member of their family for that long. And I don't think it would be easy for the player to be away from their family for that long. But if they want the NHL to return, if these players want to recoup millions upon millions of dollars on their piece of the pie or their, their slice of the pie, and if they want to resume the season and fight for a Stanley Cup, I don't see another way that's going to happen. So there's no gray area here. I, I really believe it's either leave your family for a number of weeks, months, and resume the season, 
or don't resume the season. And I'm not trying to be callous and saying suck it up. That's not what I'm saying at all. All I'm saying is that I think that's what players are going to have to debate is what's worth it. At, at what cost are they willing to resume the season? And my guess would be most guys are going to say, well, we don't like this. It's definitely not ideal. We're going to do it, and, and we'll, we'll go about some of the, the hardships and difficulties uh, that, that would take part place in the personal life to resume a season. I, th- I think it's a fair comment, but I also think it's the only way that hockey's going to return this season. Well, and I think you nailed it on the head. If you're a family man, this is a much more difficult decision than if you're a 22-year-old whose entire you know, life has been focused about becoming a pro hockey player. Those are very different phases of your life. And I think as much as this is an issue in hockey, it's an even bigger one in baseball where league minimums like a half million American. And it takes a long time before you can get into the system of getting paid in terms of arbitration, first time, second time, third time, then free agency. And on the flip side, so if let's say you're three years into your major league career, you could be an all-star and not make much money. Like that's very normal. Yeah. Whereas if you're Justin Verlander and you're dating Kate Upton and you've made $200 million like that disparity is greater than yeah, the, the, Ver, the Verlander Upton, the Verlander like, Upton that connection. The There's a lot of money there. Hey, no, but, and it's not even like her, I'm just saying it's very, very easy for someone that is trying to get their career earnings to a spot where they're comfortable to say, yes, I'm in. It's a lot harder for someone who has made millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to say, yeah, I'm cool. Uh, because their priorities are so different. And so yeah. if you think that's a tough one for hockey players, go look at the disparity between uh, haves and haves nots in some other sports. And baseball is the biggest one where you could, you know, Vlad Guerrero Jr. will make a half million dollars this year and other guys will make 30 plus. Like that, that's a huge disparity. Yeah. Um, and it's one that we brought up when the, the Phoenix bubble was proposed because that's exactly the conversation we're having now about hockey was happening almost a month ago now where it was like, why would the vets want this at all? Why? They don't have to worry about earnings as much as the younger guys. But you're right. When you when you listen to Dan O, it's like, okay, you don't want to do this? Well, if you're not comfy with it, you better be comfy with escrow of 30 to 50%. Yeah, and I think that's really And they've the hated escrow like at 10 12%, 14 this year. Oh, my goodness. Well, what happens when it's almost half your paycheck going right back to the owners? That's what you're trading up right there. Yep, there's a lot to consider, whether it's it's escrow or being away from your family or whatever the case may be. There, there's a lot of things, and, and we just detailed them right there for you. There's a lot of hurdles that the NHL needs to clear here, right? But look, I'm... I, I know there are logistical challenges. I know it's not going to be easy, and I know it's going to be far different than what we've ever seen in the NHL, but I'm still quite optimistic that they can get this thing back, they can play games this summer, and it'll, it'll be a new normal for a little while, but that's that's going to help them recoup a lot of money, which is important for the state of the entire game. So I'm, I'm feeling still pretty optimistic about this thing, knowing that things can change dramatically in the next 24 hours, let alone in the the next 60 days if we have to figure out how to mix aloe vera application margaritas and you know late sunsets into the final regular season hockey games or early round one playoff hockey we'll figure it out pat yeah we'll make it work um yeah you know there, there's all kinds of logistical hurdles and who knows whether this happens or not that's a guess what we do know is if it does we'll be really really excited and we'll yeah. finally uh, have some answers to the big questions that were laid out um, you know, be it compensatory picks, be it 
the fate of the core of the Calgary Flames, be it that does the Tampa Bay Lightning get over the hurdle, all that good stuff. Uh, okay, a little more detail, a little more, I guess, information when we come back. Chris Johnson, our NHL insider, what is he hearing and what does a new transfer agreement mean for players coming over to the NHL from Europe as well? We'll put a little summary in a bow on the time of John McDonough as the president of the Chicago Blackhawks, maybe the best run in the last half century of Blackhawks hockey. Chris Johnson coming up next. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Back to Pinder and Steinberg, Calgary Sports Talk in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Well, last segment, we got into all the different hurdles and different logistical challenges and, and all the things the NHL is going to need to consider when it comes to restarting the league. Well, there's still a healthy amount of optimism from people in touch with the league that those things are going to be able to be completed. More on that with our NHL insider, Chris Johnston, who joined Pinder and I a little earlier today, but starts with some interesting news out of Chicago and a, a fairly significant front office movement uh front office move rather here is chris johnston our nhl insider from earlier today interesting news out of chicago in the last 24 hours john mcdonough and the organization parting ways uh what does this mean and what uh, will he be remembered for because uh, my goodness that organization looks a whole lot different with him leaving than when he arrived yeah he'll be remembered for twenty-two thousand butts in the seats every night and three stanley cup banners uh, hanging from the roof of the united center and and you know, that's far more success off the ice or, or on the ice than the Blackhawks had had in decades and really in their entire history, actually, if you look at it, since before he arrived. So, you know, I think it was a monumental piece of news. You know, obviously, John McDonough, if you're not living in Chicago, maybe isn't too much of a front-facing character, not someone that, that fans or the media would focus too much on. But internally, he was a big part of a culture shift in the way the Blackhawks do business. I think he was fortunate uh, to arrive at a time uh, when they, they acquired some of the young players that uh, helped uh, deliver those three Stanley Cups. Obviously, uh, his, his impact on the hockey side is, is only to a certain degree. But, um, you know, for that organization, he's been a commanding figure. And I don't think anyone really saw this coming. He was on the, the team president's call the league had last Wednesday. And, you know, he received a public vote of confidence from the owner as recently as a couple of weeks ago in an interview at The Athletic. So, you know, this was a bit of a surprise and probably signals a shift in the direction of the organization that's going to play out now over the next uh, few months and, and maybe a year. It was uh, interesting to note uh, Kurt Overhart, the uh, NHL player agent's thoughts on an exceptional player status. Um I immediately shrugged it off uh, just saying, look, Gary Bettman locked out this league over for a full season to get a hard cap and not a soft cap or a luxury tax. Uh, Any reason that would be any different now that this would get traction when uh, it was essentially grounds the league was willing to die on not long ago? No, I I don't, you know, personally I have no issues with the idea. I like the idea of, you know, allowing maybe a little bit more flexibility in the system, but I view it as you do in that I, I don't see any world where the teams are, are going to line up to sign this. I mean, I suppose as in any type of negotiation, there, there could be things the players uh, give back in terms of concessions that maybe compel the league to do this, but, you know, I think it's a long shot uh, just because the, the, the benefit if you own a team in the league or if you're in the front office is that there really aren't that many exceptions to, to the NHL's cap. It, it's truly a hard cap system guarantees that only 50% of the league revenue is spent out to players, no matter what the circumstances are. And so 
because it's such a favorable deal for the owners. I don't see them making this, this type of concession at this point in time, but you know, I do applaud Kurt for, for putting that out there um, because I, I think that this can be a time, especially uh, as this, this goes on and on without games and, and much to talk about other than when, and if they're getting back on the ice, that, that we should explore some new ideas, you know, over in Sweden, they're debating right now about going to a smaller ice surface, something closer to what we have here in the NHL. I think that this is a good time to, to, to use this, you know, with, with different stakeholders in the games to throw ideas out there. But I just don't see this particular one uh, catching hold uh, in time for the next CBA negotiation. Well, that's fascinating in Sweden. Why is that the case? And what sort of is seen as the benefit of, of going to closer to NHL ice? I, I think they feel that the game uh, maybe is, is just played too much on the, the outside of the rink. I mean, we see that sometimes in international events. I know it was a concern for Team Canada at the Olympics in Sochi with, with all the NHL stars going to the wider surface. And, and what they propose there is bringing the, the boards in two meters, which, which is basically halfway between olympic size ice and NHL ice. And they, they're actually hopeful that by making this move now, and, and they haven't fully agreed to do it, although some pretty powerful figures in, in the, the hockey league over there are behind this and are supporting it. So I think there's a good chance we'll see it start to be rolled out, but they feel that it might compel teams to leave prospects over in Europe a little longer too, that, that, you know, one of the reasons you see a lot of NHL teams want to bring their Swedish prospects to the AHL is, is because they're, they're working with that adjustment from the larger ice to the smaller ice. And that, you know, if, if that consideration is removed from the equation, it might be a way to keep young players, uh, you know, in, in the domestic league a little longer. Chris Johnson with us Tuesdays and Thursdays here on Pinder and Steinberg. CJ, what uh, what are you hearing? What's the latest when it comes to the NHL's plans or hopes to restart this season? Well, really, we're we're getting closer now to I think a little bit of movement. Um, you know, for the league, there, there's some talk that, that maybe as soon as May 15th, some teams might be able to open their facilities for small group skates, which is essentially the, the phase two of the plan the NHL has come up with to get back to, to playing. Uh, you know, it's still probably a little bit premature to say for sure whether it'll be that soon, but the fact that these conversations are happening, I think, is a reflection of the fact there's a focus internally on, on the transition from where we've been since the season was paused in phase one, which is, you know, players being recommended to isolate themselves and report symptoms and all those things to, you know, getting them back on the ice with an eye on, on opening training camps in June. And so, you know, with the, the calendar about the flip uh, and I think, you know, a fair bit of discussion behind the scenes turning so optimistic, you know, the, the NHL and, and I believe the players right now are on board with, with doing what they can to, to really try to see this out and, and um, you know, execute on some of the plans we've talked about with the centralized uh, way of getting the regular season games uh, started up in the summer and eventually hand out a Stanley Cup. So how close... How close are they to, for instance, finalizing what the four hubs would be? Do you think they've got front runners? Do you think they've got the four they want? Or is that still very much up in the air? I'd say the the best way to put it is it's up in the air. You know, I still think that there's as many as 12 cities that are being considered and and vetted uh, for the possibility. And, you know, the the truth is, is the league still can't be 100% sure what the government's uh, are going to allow. You know, I, I do think that Edmonton is, is considered as a very, very strong option, but obviously there were some comments since that first emerged, you know, from the health authority there 
that, that maybe cast a little bit of doubt on whether the league would, would be allowed to go ahead and do that. Um, you know, Toronto is, is considered a front runner and they've been vocal uh, about wanting to, to host. I think Columbus is viewed as a strong possibility. I know Dallas is seen as a potential spot, you know, that, that could be a little bit more for the teams in the South. Um, you know, those are the, the kind of teams we're hearing, but, you know, I, I think that you would see the league wait at least maybe another few weeks to a month before committing uh, because they have to be sure, you know, how the, the situation develops in those cities. And ultimately they might have to gain some exemptions from the local governments in order to have gatherings of what, you know, is probably somewhere in the range of 200 people I've told is, is sort of what you're looking at to, to have NHL games put on uh, with a TV broadcast in a building that doesn't have any fans allowed in it. Um, so, you know, th- there's still a, a fair bit of, even, even without the concrete cities, I guess, being nailed down, I, I still think there is a high degree of optimism that this is going to be a functional plan, that it's one that withstands the rigors of, of you know, health authorities. And, and ultimately it's going to come down to, you know, being allowed by the local government authorities to, to be able to do it. But, you know, they're, they're looking at cities that have lots of available ice because you're going to have to have areas for teams to practice. Uh, the, the best bubble is a bubble uh, that has a, an arena basically with, or sorry, a hotel right within the, the vicinity of the arena, like they have there with that JW Marriott in Edmonton, mm-hmm. uh, because it just, it just eliminates one less thing you have to control, that being a bus ride uh, in, in which obviously the bus has to be cleaned. The, the, the bus driver would have to be someone who's living kind of in that, that same isolated bubble. You can remove that. It's, it's considered a safer scenario. And so I think, I think cities where, um, you, you do have lots of practice ice available and, and where there's quality hotel accommodations very close to the arena and where obviously ultimately the, the government authorities are open to it are the ones being most closely looked at. And just for the record, I, I, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic that whatever the plan ends up being finalized as, I'm fairly optimistic they can put this thing into, into practice. And, and I believe that this is something doable, but in saying so, what are the, the big pitfalls for you? What are the, the largest and most significant hurdles that the NHL is going to need to clear to ensure, A, they can start doing this, and B, they can finish this? Well, I think in some ways the, the biggest first hurdle is going to be getting everyone back to North America and, and you know having them sit out periods of you know, 14 day, observe periods of 14-day isolation if they're traveling back. Uh, you know, from Europe, say, to, to Canada or if they're playing in the U.S. I think, I think kind of just getting the wheels in motion on this is going to be a challenge because the league would like to, in a perfect world, you know, get training camps going somewhere around June 1st, uh, potentially play some exhibition games, you know, towards the end of June and then get the season going or restart it, have, the, have you, you know, report to your, your, your four centralized cities and, and, you know, get the thing started on the regular season by July. And, and I just think that that, some of the, the hurdles between then and now are, are pretty big to scale uh, because I do know two players at least that flew back just last week to Sweden uh, and I don't blame them for doing so. They're now looking at this like we're not going to have a summer. So this is an opportunity to get home and visit with people and do things that you would normally do in the off season because obviously what we know of an NHL calendar is currently being rewritten by the day. Um, but it, it's only to say that there are hundreds of players that need to somehow find a way to uh, get back to their cities and, how you go about doing that, how you make sure they're, they're, they're healthy and safe. I mean, in the bigger scale, I think, you know, a, a more wider access to testing is going to be, uh, you know, essential to this. And it's something that we don't have now in most places in North America. They're still 
a lack of testing. That finally, obviously, is what they do if somebody, you know, turns up a positive reaction to the, the novel coronavirus. I mean, the, the league's already said if it's one player or a small handful of players, it doesn't call the whole thing off. But how they control that, how they isolate that, mm-hmm. what the acceptable level of risk is or, or what have you, I think will be an important question to, to get to. But there's so many small details that, that have to happen long before that's, I guess, a pressing issue for the league. That Those are the, the things I'm most focused on right now. What um, Philippe Deneau on a conference call with reporters today said that you know a lot of players won't like having to be away from their families for however long this would go on for. I think for some teams it would be a number of weeks. For some teams it would be a number of months, depending on how far you end up going. From who you've talked to, how, how significant is player pushback on this potential idea? Well, it's... Look, it's out there, and, and I do think it's something union deals with on a lot of issues that maybe don't have one clear answer, that, that they, they do represent a lot of people, and, and obviously there's, there's different priorities within that group. I, I don't see it, though, being an issue that's going to squash the plan. You know, I, I do believe if the, the government authorities and health authorities allow the NHL to go ahead and, and make this happen, if it's deemed safe by them, then, then ultimately the, the Players Association will comply. Now, you know, within that, there might be some individual exceptions made. You know, perhaps some guys ask out and are given permission to. You know, maybe this plan ultimately includes some way, especially for the teams that play deep into the playoffs and will be, you know, sequestered away from the families the longest. I mean, maybe there's a way to have the families join them within that bubble at some point. You know, maybe as teams start getting eliminated, there's, there's room in those hotel spaces and there's right. a way to, to make that sort of thing happen. I mean, I think all those are possible ways to address this concern. And, and look, it's not as though it's one player out of the whole league that has the concern. I just don't see it being a deal breaker. I mean, ultimately, this comes back to the same thing we've been been hitting on a lot, is that there's a lot of money at stake for for both sides in this. I think the overwhelming amount of players are willing to put up with uh, the nuisance of it, I guess, or some of the the downsides of it to try to have a chance to play for the Stanley Cup, if for no other reason than to preserve their ability to earn as much of the contracts they've agreed to as possible. And, you know, at the end, you know, some of these guys are going to have just spent three months at home at a time when they normally wouldn't be at home. And so I think that if you balance it out on whole, obviously part of their job is, is to be away. And so, you know, I, I do think you'll hear other dissenting voices, but to me it's not going to be a deal breaker based on the, the conversations I've had. And and just a, a final thought on, on that specifically. Whenever I've had conversations with people, the the main thing that I keep saying is to, hey, look, I mean, yeah, there might be pushback from players, but there is a significant amount to gain from their standpoint, too, and not just the fact they could play for a Stanley Cup and be playing again, but can you break down the financial impact from a player's standpoint of, of what getting this going again would mean? Because there's, there's certainly a, a financial benefit from the Players Association side, too. Well, for sure, and, and the numbers that I've heard quoted are between four and five hundred million. It's believed could be recouped, you know, as a whole, um, you know, by by being able to resume and finish the regular season and holding a playoffs, even even in a scenario without fans. And a simple way to look at that is the money split both ways. So that's two hundred to two hundred fifty million uh, that will be, you know, allocated into players' pockets. So, and if that doesn't happen, that's money that will be have to be made up in escrow or paid in some other way. And and. You know, the, the nuts and bolts of how this all shakes out will probably be subject to some of the transition agreements that are made. But in simple terms, you know, it, it, this, this is 
it's it's a lot of money for for players, and I think that there's a symbolic value as well in in getting the league up and running and, and getting some momentum into the next season when. You know, we're, we're probably now looking at, uh, you know, based on what I'm hearing from teams, the start of next season not happening anywhere before December. Uh, and the, the hope that, you know, at that time, maybe you're having some fans in the building and, and certainly as, this, as the next season goes along, uh, you know, we can get to a point hopefully where there's a vaccine and, and you can get closer to full arenas and, and, you know, have next season be as good as possible. I mean, that's part of what goes on here too, because at a point when there's no revenue for the league, there's no revenue for the players, and these guys already have short enough uh, earning windows as it is. I think that there's, mm-hmm. I think that there's, there's a probably a pretty deep understanding within the union about the importance. Again, not everyone will be on side with it. Some people won't like it. I think Philip Deneau's issue probably is that the, he doesn't feel the Canadians are even going to be in a position to to be in the playoffs because if they do get the regular season in, it's going to be the top 16. Um, you know, the way we've been in the past, it won't be an expanded playoff format, and so I, I get that it will be tougher for teams that are kind of out of it but you know it's also it's also his job and uh you know it's, it's going to be decided by the union as a whole not just uh you know a small handful of members he's chris johnston our nhl insider joins us tuesdays and thursdays on pinder and steinberg cj just a thought on the these uh, neutral sites or i shouldn't say neutral sites the host cities are, are we guaranteed that it's going to be divisional alignment that, that sets us up, or could there be a shift in terms of it makes more sense for Team X to be in this pool rather than with the rest of their division? Because I just keep hearing yourself and Elliot sort of carefully not saying division, or maybe I'm just hearing things. No, you're not hearing things. You know, that's been contemplated that it might not be divisions. I mean, I think ideally it is the divisions, but there could be a scenario where that doesn't make full sense. You know, I'll give you an example in the Atlantic division, you know, you have Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Boston, Buffalo, all, all within very short flights geographically aligned, but you also have Florida and Tampa in that division, you know, a three hour flight to the South, you know, there's a chance if Dallas say is, is, you know, one of the sites that gets chosen that potentially those Florida teams could end up somewhere like Dallas. And, and I just draw that up as a, you know, a, for example of, of a way that this, might end up happening. And so I do think that there could be some room here to shift things around what I'm not entirely clear on. And I don't believe the league and the players association have got to this degree of detail in their discussions, but you know, how that would then work for the first round, because, you know, my understanding is obviously once you get teams settled into these sites, I think you would want to restrict the movement between the sites. And and so it would make sense that, you know, if you're based in Columbus, for example, to finish regular season, that's probably where you play your first round games. I don't know exactly how that would impact the playoffs and if they'd allow one or two teams to move, say, before the first round. Um, you know, and again, I'm not sure if that's fully mapped out just yet, but I, I do know for certain that it's not, they're, they're not fully married to it only being the divisions. I just think the divisions largely will be what you see because, you know, most of those teams are geographically in the same regions. Yeah, interesting. Okay, uh, we saw some news uh, that we were expecting for a while finally come through today. The, I guess, extension of the NHL's uh, agreements with European leagues. But there were a couple unique notes that at least caught my eye. It's in a one-year extension for most of the leagues in Europe, but not the Swiss A League. What is different about the agreement with Swiss A than what we've seen with, say, Austria, Sweden, Finland, and others? Well, I don't know the exact parameters of what we're de- dealt with there, but the, the reason that one was left to the side is because there wasn't an agreement in place. And so they mm. didn't have an agreement at this point in time 
um, to to just extend the way they did the others. And I do think in a perfect world, in a, in a, a non-COVID world, uh, you probably would have saw longer-term extensions in all these cases and some changes to the way these things work because I do think the league was, was somewhere down the, the, the road in, on having those discussions with the federations. But, you know, with COVID-19 taking over all of the, the NHL resources really since the start of March, um, you know, they, they decided to put those things to the side, uh, agree to extend the current, contra- uh, the current contracts with the, the European nations by a year and, and I think revisit those, those sort of conversations down the road. And, you know, now in the short term, what it does is it allows, you know, a number of players – that have been playing in Europe to, to sign deals with, with NHL teams. You know, a lot of those deals have been kind of uh, agreed upon virtually. Not, I can't even call it a handshake deal anymore, but have been put in a drawer somewhere and, and, and worked out, and, and now those things can be filed. And so I think a lot of this was procedural. Where it'll get interesting, though, is a year from now because you know, they also extended the Canadian Hockey League agreement, and, and I do think there was some discussion, again, prior to you know the pandemic, taking everyone's attention away to, to maybe having – some consideration to have uh, teenagers play in the AHL, uh, you know, that, that come from CHL teams, uh, some, some sort of mechanism to work that out. And, and so while that isn't happening right now, I do think it is a conversation for another day. And perhaps this time next year, we'll be looking at some, some different transfer agreements. That's long been uh, one of the things I've never understood. The CHL, the only league on earth where uh, they can hold back a player from advancing. A 19-year-old cannot if they're drafted out of the CHL, go into play in the American League only to the NHL club. Uh, what has been, the, I guess, the the build-up to this? Because it, it hasn't made sense for a long time from my perspective. Now, I don't own a junior team. It's probably different from that perspective. But why now is the NHL getting some traction to change this? Well, I just think it's the degree of pushback has got to the point where it's it's more likely to happen. And, you know, the reason it's been this way prior to now is I think – there was a view that, you know, some, some individual hurt uh, was worth it for the cause, that, that the better the CHL was as a league, everyone benefited from having, you know, pretty high-level competition uh, in that league. But, you know, I think as we've seen the NHL get younger, the desire to incorporate, um, you know, players into the lineup sooner, probably arguably have 18- and 19-year-olds arriving to the NHL a little bit more ready to play than, than maybe they did in years gone by. I think some of that is, has led to the pressure here, but, but, you know, ultimately, obviously this is an agreement struck between two leagues. And if, you know, the league, if the NHL agrees to do this, the CHL has every right to enforce it. But, you know, the way I see it is the NHL has a fair bit of leverage. And so, you know, I'm sure there's, there's things they can do to compensate the Canadian hockey league to make this happen. I'm sure it'll be, there'll be some kind of limitations, whether it's former first round picks or, or some, some sort of caveat. I don't, I doubt it'll be, every 19 year old player can suddenly be assigned to the AHL instead of his team in the CHL. But, you know, I, I do think that this is going to loosen a little bit, uh, you know, once they have time to, to sit down and really make a new deal. And then a final one on the, uh, the transfer agreements. status quo for Russia, meaning there is no agreement and that if a player is under contract in the KHL or in the NHL, they're off limits for the others. That's, that's my understanding of what's in place. Yep. That, that continues to be the case. And, and it's been that way for a long time. I think, all the way back to when Alex Radulov first left Nashville to go to the KHL. Uh, that was in, in contravention the NHL felt of an agreement that was in place, and I don't think a new one was ever struck after that, that period of time. So things have worked that way. You know, One of the caveats, of course, is that the Russian players do have an ability in some cases to buy out their deals. Uh, so you know, there, there's maybe a little bit of flexibility that exists there that, that might not in other places, and, and there have been guys in the past who 
basically paid money to their team to become a free agent. And, and so there's a bit of wiggle room, but there's still uh, still not a whole lot of agreement, I guess, on the NHL and the KHL side of those, those types of uh, you know, player transfers. Chris Johnson with us uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays here on Pinder and Steinberg. Patty. Well, I guess, CJ, as, as uh, we we wrap things up, um, just a thought on the, the Ivan Holinka being canceled. Uh, I know that this probably doesn't come as a big surprise, but because it was in August, I think there was still some hope that maybe this thing could get done. Uh, just a thought on, on why that decision had to be made and, and ultimately why they went down that road. Well, honestly, I think a lot of it's tied to the fact the Oilers want to leave that, that window open to potentially yeah. be considered a host for these these centralized games. And, and so, you know, I, I don't know all that has to go on with the government and the league to make that happen, but I certainly think it's something the Oilers as an organization want to do. And, and you know, let's face it, I, I don't know what the travel situation is going to be at that point uh, for the teams. You know, I think that the writing is, was a little bit on the wall. We've seen other international events, you know, of similar uh, quality, I guess, canceled here in the last few weeks, and, and this was the next one to go. But, you know, I, I do think that, that part of the timing here is, is the Oilers – uh, making it clear to the NHL that they have an open building and, and a willingness to work with the league and the government to try to make it happen to, to be able to host NHL games in July and August. There's Chris Johnson. We'll chat with him again on Thursday. You can catch him Tuesdays and Thursdays here on Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Reminder, we got Flames hockey coming up. We're down memory lane when we come back. Not that long ago, not 89, not 04, but how about this December? Against the Colorado Avalanche, you might remember how that series ended in the first round last year. Oh, and the Flames dropped their first couple of regular season games against the Avs. Time for a little revenge. We'll see when we come back. Flames and Avalanche, a little vintage 2019 hockey in Sportsnet 960, the fan.